Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. need to realize is this is so much bigger than Mike Brown. This is so much bigger than Ferguson. Two cities, two incidents, and one cause that is pulling people to the streets to demand change. Today, dozens of protesters came together in downtown Phoenix to stand against police brutality. This comes after the death of an unarmed teenager in Ferguson, Missouri, and the death of a mentally ill woman in Phoenix this week. Tonight, William Pitts takes a look at what happened with Michelle Cousseau as she was killed in Phoenix. These protesters say with all the focus on Missouri, now is the perfect time to ask questions in Cousseau's death. They sent the help ended her life. I, I really, that's hard to believe. I can't even count from this. Michelle Cousseau's mother said she called to get her daughter to an inpatient facility. That call ended with her death. This is about police brutality and this is about excessive force. Um, from law enforcement. Cousseau was shot and killed when police tried to take her to that mental health facility. They say she threatened to shoot the employees. Police say she came at them with a claw hammer. There should be a thousand people out here right now. Instead, a couple dozen calling themselves United in Red, protesting in front of Phoenix City Hall, arms raised in what's become the Ferguson, Missouri protest gesture. Uh, what happened is I get a call Friday. And and uh, I think that the Reverend, and, and I give him worlds of credit, he had rethought the position, he had heard what I said, he started looking into it, and he investigated it on his own. Hmm. And he said, Mr. McDonald, can I meet with you and Stuart Perry? I said, absolutely. You tell me when we agreed to meet last night. So we had dinner at Kona Grill in Gilbert, and Reverend Maupin and myself and Stuart sat there and answered all of his questions, told about his life, uh, told about his uh, work, his beliefs, uh, uh, and the Reverend came away absolutely convinced, as I've said on your show, mm -hmm. there's not a racist bone in his body. Interesting. Mel McDonald, Mel McDonald's the lawyer for Officer Stuart Fair and the ASU cop who uh, pulled over, stopped a uh, ASU professor from jaywalking. It turned into, well, I guess I should use past tense. Scuffle. It was 
a, a it was going to be a, a civil rights violation. That's what they were going to sue for. And the ASU professor uh, was pled guilty, said, you know, in court that, you know, I shouldn't have done what I had done. And we thought this was all settled. And then it came out later that ASU was going to fire uh, Stuart Farron, the ASU cop. How do you respond when, when you know, when you go on the air tomorrow, when this airs, you're going to have people in the community, predominantly white people, say, that mopping, he's just like Sharpton and the rest coming on television and getting everybody agitated. How do you respond to that when people say you're an agitator, you're not solving it, you're making it worse? They don't have their dinners interrupted by people of color who are afraid for their lives, and I do. I left my dinner table to address this issue. Um, my life stops when these things happen because people need help. They're, they're scared. They're scared. They're scared for their lives of the police. Man, that is a, that is an awful charge. I mean, that. Well, it's it's true. It's true. And every time one of these instances happen, we talk about healing. We talk about having community conversations about race. We talk about augmenting training. We talk about how to fix it. We never get the work done. If this didn't happen on the heels of Ferguson. Are we even having this conversation tonight? Yes, we are. Um, it happened on the heels of the shooting death of, of Michelle Crusoe. It's happened on, on the heels of the death of uh, uh, Tamir Greeson in, in, in Cleveland, the 12-year-old who was shot with a toy gun. Uh, it happened on, on the tail end of, 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 of Eric Garner with that verdict coming down. There is a rash of police killings around the country and police killings that have happened in this city. I told people. Don't get outraged about Ferguson. If you're going to get outraged, get outraged about the killings that are happening in this city. And they are happening in this city. I went to Arizona State Penitentiary to do a film with Gene Wilder, right? We did a film called Stir Crazy. And it was really strange because it's 80% black people in there. And you say, well, why is that strange? Because there are no black people in Arizona. <laughs> I mean, they bust my uh, in. The cows, Gusty Renegade Justice, in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of racism. Today's date, <clears throat> Thursday, February 12th, 2015. So I have been told. Um, quite a bit in the audio clips, I would say, uh, if anything, I know we tried always, uh, insist that racism is a, a global problem, uh, what it is happening to black people, uh, trying to pay attention to that on a global scale. Uh, but I would definitely say as someone who lives, uh, in the United States that, uh, I would hope that we do at least an adequate job of trying to cover all of the different aspects of racism, uh, particularly things that, that pick up a lot of media attention or should pick up a lot of media attention to try to do an adequate job at minimum uh, of covering those incidents. And uh, I definitely think Arizona, Arizona is much closer to me uh, than New York City or Missouri, uh, Florida, some of the North Carolina, some of the uh, areas where there's been a lot of 
prominent focus uh, on racism, white supremacy over the past six, seven months. Uh, I could actually drive, I think, to Arizona and be there at a reasonable uh, amount of time. And there have been a lot of incidents uh, that I don't think have gotten as much attention as some of the big names. Uh, so I'm really glad we'll have an opportunity to kind of go over uh, some of those reports uh, with regards to different cases uh, and to get to hear directly from some of the black people who have been organized and uh, working on the ground. Uh, I think the the core aspect of this started with Dr. Ursula Orr uh, and the abuse that was videotaped uh, on camera in May of 2014. And then just investigating some of the other incidents around just to give context, as we talk about on the program all the time. Uh, if you do some checking uh, on those different cases uh, over the past year to three years uh, in the state of Arizona, you start seeing different names, uh, Remain Brisbane. Uh, Michelle Cousseau, as I said, Dr. Ursula Orr, uh, you start looking around at the different names. Uh, one face, one name, I think, will be recurrent. Uh, our guest for today's broadcast, uh, when I was going back and looking over all these different cases and reading news articles and video clips, uh, I kept seeing his face, kept seeing his face, kept seeing his face. Uh, whether they talked to him or not, he was in the crowd uh, at different protests and what have you, different events, press conferences. Uh, they were going to him to get his views. Uh, and he did a pretty good job of being honest uh, about the problems that we face as a result of racism. Uh, real pleasure to have him on the program with us. Uh, Phoenix resident uh, and the youngest elected person to a public office in the state of Arizona. Uh, so glad to have him with us. Our guest, Reverend Jarrett Maupin. Uh, Reverend Maupin, are you with us? I am. Thank you for having me on the show this evening. Pleasure. We are grateful you could spend some of your time with us. Uh, anything that you think listeners should know about you before we get started? Well, I think for the uh, full purposes of, of disclosure, you know, uh, uh, Baptist uh, minister, uh, you know, I consider myself to be left of center, uh, unapologetically so. Uh, and I, I cut my teeth on uh, the streets of of, uh, of Harlem, USA. I uh, was a uh, national youth director for the Reverend Al Sharpton's National Action Network for a number of years, and I went on to serve on, on that board. And uh, So I think I have a good sense, uh, and, and as do you, listening to the program of what our folks are going through and and, uh, and where we go from here, you know, to bring to, bring to mind uh, Dr. King's eternal question. Mm, outstanding. Uh, for listeners who haven't haven't seen you or heard the work that you do before, uh, you are a black male. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Uh, this program, uh, we always start off with our definition uh, for racism. Uh, I use the term racism as a synonym for the term white supremacy. I use the same definition for both terms. Uh, the definition I use is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Uh, do you think such a system exists? Do you think that's an accurate definition? I, I certainly do believe that, that a system like that exists. Uh, I think uh, and it goes by many names. Colonialism, uh, 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 imperialism, uh, uh, you know, we, we see that states' rights, 
uh, it's masked by any number of uh, of names, and I think the uh, the answer uh, to it, and, and something that I think uh, makes some establishment folks uncomfortable, especially around these police shootings, is actually uh, uh, is actually uh, black power. And as I define that, uh, you know, uh, I think folks understand it. It 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 means that you know we want uh, uh, we are demanding the same uh, things and accepting nothing less. Uh, than than what uh, than what whites have. We non-whites. When I say black, I'm talking about everyone because uh, anyone who is of color uh, has opportunity to thank uh, for their advancements uh, in in the civil rights, human rights that that they do have that are recognized. That's what we need. Uh, someone and some people, uh, black people in America, must challenge uh, this system of, of of racism, that's uh, that's what's holding us up. Uh, police brutality, economic injustice, political injustice, housing injustice, wage injustice, uh, even at the root of sexism and homophobia is racism. It's there. Wow, fascinating. Um, I thought to start the program off, um, it would be good for context before we get to uh, remain Brisbane and. Dr. Ursula Orr to kind of give some background uh, for folks who don't know a whole lot about the state of Arizona. Uh, I was going to start off. This was uh, in a local paper uh, since we're in Black History Month. And just a few weeks back, we celebrated Dr. King's uh, holiday. You even referenced his writing. Where do we go from here? Uh, The paper they wrote. Martin Luther King Day, the holiday, officially Martin Luther King Jr. Civil Rights Day in Arizona was not recognized for many years after it became a national holiday. Senator John McCain voted against the MLK Day bill in 1983, though he came to support MLK Day in Arizona by the early 1990s. Democratic Governor Bruce Babbitt created the holiday in Arizona by executive order in 1986, the same year the holiday was first recognized nationally after approval by President Ronald Reagan. By the, but the next year, Babbitt's Republican successor, Evan Meckham, revoked the order, concluding that the order was illegal. In 1990, two ballot proposals to instate MLK Day as a paid state holiday failed at the voting, voting booths. Meckham, incidentally, was a white man who, among other things, used a racial slur to describe black children and defended himself from charges of racism by saying, I've got black friends. I employ black people. I don't employ them because they are black. I employ them because they are the best people who applied for the cotton picking job. In quotes. I will stop there. Uh, as an Arizona resident, do you have some understanding of the history of the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday in that state and why it's significant? Well, I, I know the story better than most. My grandmother, Opal Ellis, uh, was a, uh, uh, a civil rights luminary here. Uh, um, she, too, was trained up in, in, uh, in uh, New York. She worked under Adam Clayton Powell Jr. for a number of years, but uh, she came here and uh, you know, certainly fought in the 60s and 70s, the major battles. Uh, in 1941, in fact, she led the first sit-ins uh, here in the city of Phoenix. And uh, and uh, these uh, lunch counters were desegregated 
a bit earlier than uh, than the rest of the uh, uh, the country by fifty four. They they had been uh, they had been desegregated, but. Uh, this is a strange place, and so she uh, led the fight along with Gene Williams, Clovis Campbell Sr., and others to uh, to to get this holiday uh, move forward. Uh, Evan Meekham was really a, uh, a classic racist, well, middle-aged white male Mormon. At that time, we weren't even allowed to go to the same heaven uh, in his mind, and based on the teachings of his religion, I don't think blacks had been admitted to the so-called priesthood of the Mormon Church. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was just a classic racist. But a lot of people don't know. I call Arizona, Mississippi West. Uh, we, you know, we, we are, uh, were a part of the uh, Confederacy. A lot of people don't know. Before statehood, when, when we were a territory, you know, we were on the wrong side of slavery. We sided with the, uh, uh, with the, the Confederacy. And, and a lot of people who are in power here in terms of the corporations that are headquartered here, the political dynasties are certainly, uh, you know, Southern uh, uh, political uh, political families. McCain voted against the King holiday. Uh, Janice Brewer, the governor who infamously stuck her finger in Barack Obama's face at the airport, uh, voted against the King holiday. She was a state senator at the time and voted for it, and also voted against the, the eventual impeachment of Evan Beacom. He was impeached for uh, misappropriation of, of uh, public funds. He used uh, money for his inauguration uh, fund to uh, bail out his uh, failing car dealership. Uh, and thus ended, you know, the reign of, of Meekham the racist. Um, but that, that's that been the story of, of Arizona uh, of the last several decades and why I think people have a strange perception of, of what this place is because racism is so... Uh, it's so pervasive here. Mm. Mississippi West. Wow. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned, uh, I guess now it's former governor, uh, Jan Brewer, uh, white female, white female emphasize. I, I hope folks remember that moment. Uh, I think that was 2012, unless I'm in error, uh, beginning of 2012 when she stuck her finger in his face. Did you think that was an example of this white woman practicing racism publicly, disrespecting the president that way? Oh, absolutely. She bragged about it. She wow. bragged about it and bragged about it. And so I did everything in my power, you know, to make sure that we were at events together. It took me about six months, but I, I found that a, a prime opportunity to stick my finger back in her face. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think it's, it's important to do that. You know, it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, we're just as good, if not better, uh, than any, anyone who, uh, attacks us as a people, as a race. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, I, I, I just, uh, don't think that in Arizona or in any other part of the country, you know, that trying to to work harmoniously with white leaders is going to work all the time. It's not, you know. There's that we need more people who are willing to thumb their nose at white folks who are willing to, you know, speak the truth and not try to sugarcoat it to score political points. And uh, that's going to be required if we're going to if we're going to have any uh, any real change in this country. I, I you know. People have discounted it, but what happened after Ferguson? What happened after uh, Eric Garner, Mr. Gurley, Tamir Rice, and Michelle Cousseau, and Romaine Brisbane, Danny uh, Rodriguez? All these people, Oscar Grant, others that have been killed, Sean Bell, even going back, uh, you know, through uh, through more recent cases, uh, you know, 
It has shown that there is a, a, a system in place that devalues black lives, that devalues lives of color in this country, uh, whether they're killed at the hands of police or whether they're killed by the, the hands of their fellow citizens. And any time you have uh, uh, a system in place that devalues life because of race, uh, or because of, of socioeconomics. You know, it, it really is the makings for either the, the rebirth of the country or the destruction of the country. Uh, you know, we're still uh, African Americans between 12 and 17% of the population. Um, so I'm told, the census says, uh, you know, and it's impossible. It's impossible for a country to be run uh, with the status quo business as usual if, uh, you know, 12 to 17 percent of the population uh, refuses to go along with it, we must uh, remember where we've been, where we're going, who we are, and, and uh, engage civically and civil disobedience. Uh, or the next, what will the next round be? You know, the first attack is on civil rights and liberties, freedom. Uh, the second is police brutality. What comes after this? You know, people say, I didn't think it could get worse than than it was and then it did. You know, what will we be talking about in the future when we, when we gather and say, I didn't think it could get worse, but it has. What will they do next? Wow. I think, uh, and just keeping that in mind in terms of things, what would worse look like, things getting worse yeah. than it already is as a result of racism. Uh, people, I frequently hear folks say that, hey, President Obama was elected because you have a lot of young white men and young white women that are not like the old uh, white folks of Mississippi, Bull Connors, what have you, George Wallace. This this generation of, of racist white folks is dying out and a new generation of white people. They've grown up, you know, listening to black music and seeing black people on TV and a black president now. And they're just not racist. And. I push back on that as hard as I can, and I use examples like what happened uh, at the Arizona State University fraternity uh, last year, or yeah, last year, Tau Kappa Epsilon. Um, right. I'm sure you you heard about that incident, just and the fact that they're well, I raised hell. We got them permanently <laughs> banned from the college forever. That their charter revoked. Also, the University of Mississippi. A lot of people don't know that same group had an incident down there. I went down there and. And uh, they were, uh, they have, I think, have a 60-year ban on, uh, on uh, before they can come back on the campus and, and try to recruit or reestablish themselves on the uh, campus in Arizona with watermelon cups and, quote, dressed like black people at a Martin Luther King party, quote. Uh, and at the University of Mississippi, they were putting uh, uh, nooses, uh, around the neck of the statue of James Meredith, the first black student to try to attend school there, uh, and then eventually to graduate. So I see a lot of anger, but I don't even need to, to, look, at, to look at that. And I remind people, we are, if you think about inflation, if you think about you know, all of the, the, the economic and social things that take place over decades, we're poorer today. We're poorer in 2015 than we were in 1965. There's more of us in jail in 2015 proportionate to the population than in 1965. We've got less elected officials in 1965, more blacks on city council, school boards, uh, county boards, uh, and uh, urban seats, but the power shifted to the suburbs, so we've got more responsibility. 
uh, more folks in office and less resources to deal with it. Um, we have a black man in the White House. Uh, never mind the 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 uh, bullet marks on 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 the, uh, the the upstairs bedroom windows of his daughters. Well, we have a black man in the White House, and and racism is practiced openly on the streets of this city. You know, how can we forget the times we live in when congressmen stand up during the State of the Union and, and scream, uh, you a lie, you know, uh, uh, McCain and, and others, uh, you know, constantly questioning whether or not he's qualified to, to get the job uh, to get the job done or whether or not he's a Christian or whether or not he's an American or whether or not, you know, this is Arizona, the land of the sheriff who went after the president's birth certificate in Hawaii. Uh, so, you know, the racism factor is real and it's, it's especially real for people that live in this, uh, in this, uh, in this place. Mm. Context of white supremacy. Again, our guest, Reverend Jarrett Maupin. Uh, I'll add, if I can, to the, uh, Arizona number one place, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center for, for white supremacy, uh, dangerous white racist gangs. Wow. We're the number one place, Maricopa and Pinal County in the state of Arizona. Wow. Wow. Mississippi West, as was said earlier, um, specific, and I guess this would be, in my view, um, a sterling illustration of that sort of terrorism that people think about and associate with Mississippi or down south. Uh, the incident, the incident uh, with Arizona State University Assistant Professor Dr. Ursula Orr. Uh, this was last May. You've been a big advocate in supporting her throughout all of this. For folks uh, who maybe don't know about this incident or forgot, can you kind of give the background details as you understand them in terms of what transpired last May? Well, I've, I've worked really closely with the folks at the university, the provost's office, and, and some others, as well as the police department and the, uh, uh, the employee uh, you know, the professional organization for professors and others on the campus. And it's a really uh, complex uh, case. The, the whole situation was, uh, to me, re re regrettable and, and, uh, and, and avoidable. Uh, but in essence, what you had was a university professor uh, who was uh, allegedly uh, jaywalking, and, uh, at, at which point she encountered an officer who demanded to see some form of identification uh, from her, which she refused to do that and to abide by the officer's commands. Uh, you know, it escalated into a verbal dispute. She was questioning his authority. Uh, and then uh, he went into a rest mode, and she was, uh, she was in fact, uh, uh, handcuffed and... Uh, and manhandled. I make no no uh, ifs ands or buts about it. She was thrown against that car and thrown on the ground and and uh, and mistreated at at the hands of uh, an ASU police officer. Okay, and there is video uh, that folks can see. It was posted on YouTube. Uh, she did uh, one interview that I've seen with CNN um, not too long uh, after this incident happened. You can folks can check that out online uh, if you need a refresher. Um, number one, I guess one of the issues with this was that there was construction uh, on the street where she happened to be walking. Um, to your knowledge, at that time, this is May 2014, was there construction on the street and was actual traffic on that street uh, blocked? Well, I think there were uh, 
building some solar panels and, and doing some expansion of our light rail system. So uh, it's possible that the street did have construction and, and was uh, was uh, was blocked. Now the argument that the officer is making is that you know he's a state law enforcement uh, person and uh, that street was state property. And we do have a law in the book that does require you to uh, present uh, identification to a law enforcement officer. That's something that uh, would be great. The state of Arizona cannot be denied them is your ID. Hmm. That's interesting. Okay. And that's just ID. It doesn't have to be suspicion. Just any time, regardless of whether you're doing, committing an infraction or not, if they want to see your identification, you have to provide it. Exactly. And the university, too, has its own uh, police force, and, and uh, their, their policies say that ID must be presented upon demand by any administrator or member of their law enforcement agency. But does that merit the kind of physical treatment that she received? Uh, I, absolutely not. Hmm. Were there, to your knowledge, were there other people uh, walking uh, on this street on the same side of the road as Dr. Orr at that time? I think the video shows some individuals that were walking in her general uh in her general area, it's really hard to tell because clearly, I think the sun was going down. But uh, they engaged her, and and, uh, and things got uh, got physical. Now, I'm familiar with some things in in uh, the the uh, personnel files and and uh, and write ups for both of these people, uh, and it's a so it, it's a, it's a more complex situation uh, in terms of their mutual employability uh than than just what we see on the tape but but uh but for the purposes of our conversation i think the tape does speak for itself in relationship to uh to the uh, an inappropriate level of force that was used because this woman was uh accused of jaywalking Hmm. Okay. And mine, I don't live in the state of Arizona, but just doing my research, my understanding in the state of Arizona, uh, if someone is jaywalking, that is not a arrestable offense. That is would be oh, a citation. It, it's uh, not normally, but uh, being a veteran protester, I can tell you it's selective enforcement. It mm. can lead up to you being, uh, being uh, arrested. I've jaywalked in Tempe, as a matter of fact. Uh, in a leading protest, and uh, I've never been arrested for it, but uh, I have been picketed, uh, you know, several times for, uh, you know, for uh, not for protesting without a permit, but for jaywalking. You know, they sort of subsidize uh, their uh, uh, their uh, legal attacks. You know, using they're utilizing uh, older laws, jaywalking. Disturbing things that that really uh, are almost uh, out of place and and, uh, and not applicable. Mm, I see. Um, I guess number one, have you met with Doctor Orr personally at any point during all this time? I have, uh, and I have some things posted on Twitter about that. And you know, I listen to to her side of things, and I continue to support her her lawsuit. I think two million dollars is a fair price for having. Uh, you know, being mistreated, number one, and then number two, to have that play out millions of times, you know, across the uh, across the country, it makes it almost impossible for her to find uh, new uh, employment, 
or, or not to be, uh, you know, subjected to people's opinions on what happened to her. Hmm. What's your response uh, to white people who would watch the video or read about this and say, uh, you know, hey, Dr. Orr, she could have squashed all of this easily by complying. Uh, it's an officer. Uh, he j- she was in the wrong. She was jaywalking. Uh, he could, she should have just did what he asked, provided identification, and this all would have been over with in less than five minutes. What is your response to that? Well, I think that compliance can be helpful. Uh, I think that, that there's no indignity in complying, particularly if you feel like you're with an, an officer that's imbalanced emotionally or, or has some agenda. And all of our civil rights organizations teach that, the NAACP, Urban League, National Action Network, Rainbow Push. I mean, through the years, they've, they've instructed people on, you know, what to document and how to comply with a law enforcement officer when you're stopped so that you can survive uh, and, uh, and, and then engage in the subsequent action that's needed to get you justice. And I, I generally stand by that. Now, if a cop, you know, gets out of their car with a baseball bat and they start beating you, by no means do I, you know, should you comply. Uh, but if, if you're just being verbally or emotionally uh, taunted uh, or harassed on a stop, I think if you can, you know, exercise self-control, uh, it's beneficial in the uh, the long run. So I think that could she have de-escalated the situation? I don't really know because it all happened in such a such a uh, a small period of time. But I don't think the the action she could justify the the level of of uh, physical force that was used against her. You know, to quote, subdue her or to uh, get control of the uh, of the situation. Hmm. You you did an interview on uh, KTAR uh, in Arizona yeah. with uh, Mac and Gatos, uh, where you were discussing this case. Uh, these are two white men, uh, unless I'm in error. And it seemed that they uh, were really <laughs> giving you a lot of pushback. Uh, your allegation that you think racism uh, was involved in this case in the way that uh, Dr. Orr was treated. And they kept insisting, well, you know, how do you know that a white woman in a similar predicament would not have been subjected to the same sort of treatment or uh, if it was still Dr. Orr and it was a black officer uh, who, you know, stopped her and said the exact same thing. And, uh, you know, things went the same way. You know, you couldn't say it was racism then. Um, do you, have you had a lot of pushback from white people? And, and what is your general response when you, you know, insist that you think racism might have had a part in all this? Uh, my first uh, comment to them, if they bring that up, is when is the last time you saw any law enforcement officer manhandle a white woman? And I'm usually met with deafening silence. You know, when is the last time that you saw something like the videotape of Professor Orr? Uh, and they're hard-pressed to give an answer, if at all. Uh, and that's, that's uh, what's my uh, number one suspicion in dealing with this case but you have a person who mistreated physically this woman because, one, because of her race. He, he did that to her because he felt like he could. Why did you feel like you could? She's a woman of color and therefore entitled to a, a lesser degree of respect uh, or, or adherence to, to the rules. That was one of the questions I asked Office Affairs. Would you have treated a white woman this way? And his answer was no. 
and and I, I and I think that uh, you know if we're not willing to say that it was a conscious decision, uh, then it was certainly an un- unconscious decision where where your your brain is automatically telling you black uh, lesser uh, uh, therefore you know increased brutality, which is very dangerous. It's very dangerous. Hmm. Are there? Uh, I've seen several reports, but I haven't seen the details. Are you aware if there are any uh, reports uh, alleging misconduct against Officer Stuart Farron? He does have a one, at least one other report against him. Uh, a, a young uh, a lady, if I'm not mistaken, who was also African American, uh, felt that they had some uh, some inappropriate uh, inappropriate contact, which itself is. Is uh, you know is alarming. Everybody uh, isn't lying about having their civil rights violated or, or being mistreated. I know that that's the myth that Fox News and a lot of these white folks like to put out. But you know, it's just uh, it, it's happening to enough people now, and I think people are being bold enough to speak about it. Where that that argument is is quickly becoming irrelevant. So yes, you had a history of things. Hmm. I encourage folks to to check on that because I saw it was uh, some of the reports that I saw. They were uh, suspecting it was more than one uh, report of misconduct against uh, Officer Stuart Farron, who is a. a uh, so far, I'm, I'm aware of one that the university has acknowledged. Just one. Okay. Um, In addition to Professor Lord's situation. Got it. Got it. Um, uh, same radio station, uh, KTAR, Mac and Gatos, seems like they've been kind of following uh, this whole situation since it started. Uh, they had uh, the attorney for Officer Stuart Farron, uh, Mel McDonald, uh, who also suspects is a white man. Uh, they had him on their program uh, about a week or so. They actually had him on twice. Uh, they had him on after you were a guest on the program. Uh, he also was staunchly opposed to this notion that uh, Officer Farron practiced racism uh, in what happened with Dr. Orr and that this was absurd. Uh, And he thought, you know, your, your summary of, of the events was, was just not accurate. Uh, And then they had him back on again uh, after you and a coalition of concerned black females met with uh, officer Mel McDonald and officer Stuart Farron. Did this meeting occur and what was the substance? What can you tell us? Well, we did have the meeting, and the meeting was an opportunity. I felt it was appropriate for for civil rights activists, and particularly for black women, to have a chance to question this man and find out who he was, uh, what his background was, you know, what his thoughts on race were, uh, what his thoughts on the situation were, how where he stood on the issue of racism uh, in an unfiltered, uh, candid environment, and that's what we. Uh, invited him to. He came and sat down with us at, uh, you know, a landmark uh, soul food place and, and put himself at the mercy of uh, of the African-American women that were present. And they, they peppered him uh, with, I think, uh, you know, very, uh, very serious, again, unfiltered, uh, unscripted questions on where he stood on race, uh, where he stood on the situation with Professor Orr. Uh, and... Uh, then, uh, subsequent to that, we were made uh, uh, privy to some information that the university has and others have about his professional background and the professional background of Professor uh, of Professor Orr. So it was enlightening to learn about both of these folks uh, and 
But to me, the watershed moment came when, when I asked him, uh, at least for me personally, uh, you know, would he have treated a white woman this way? And, and the answer was, uh, the answer was no. Hmm. Did he explain why he wouldn't have subjected a white woman to the same sort of treatment? Uh, he didn't, but I think it's self-explanatory. You know, uh, clearly one of the precepts of racism is that it is okay to treat non-blacks uh, uh, in a standard, subhuman, uh, cruel, and violent manner. Uh, but it is not appropriate behavior to uh, behave that way towards whites. Uh, and I, I know he, he understood that to be the the gist of the question, and, and it, it made it tough, you know, it, it made it uh, uh, tough for us to uh, to be in that room, but, uh, you know, one of the things we have to do if we're going to be serious about addressing racism and, and hope for a future for this country uh, is to have, you know, open conversations, candid conversations, and people talk about peace and reconciliation, but before that, comes atonement, and before that comes recognition. First, we have to get people to recognize uh, racism, racism of the past, racism in the present, uh, you know, institutionalized racism, soft bigotry, you know, that, that, that's sometimes practiced by uh, liberal whites and, and in more aggressive forms of it uh, that, are, that are just everyday occurrences in the general uh, the general population, and that meeting was a part of that. You know, I, I didn't have two words for Officer Farinoria's attorney uh, if they were above or beyond uh, meeting with African-American women because, after all, that was who, I think, bore the brunt of, of this man's aggression uh, and saw themselves uh, very easily in the place of Professor Orr. Hmm. Do you, I mean, just based on what you said uh Officer Stuart Farron saying he would not have treated a white woman the way he treated Dr. Orr. Uh, I mean, just my definition of racism, like if you'd ask me what's what's the definition of a racist, like that would be the textbook definition of a racist uh, to mistreat someone because they are not white. Um, do you think just based on that, that 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 would qualify to say, hey, this sounds like what a racist would say? Uh, yes. And uh, initially, that was my definition of Officer Farron, that he was a a racist. But I think what happened in the course of our conversation is I realized that this man acted this out, uh, behaved this way, and may not have even made the decision to behave this way against this woman in a in a in a coherent way as we're thinking, and that's what frightened me the most, that, that, that law enforcement officers are making these split-second reactionary decisions, and they don't uh, don't know or aren't aware. Many of them are. You know, most of them are. But, uh, but uh, I think in some cases it's just the white privilege or the, uh, the racial superiority complex is so ingrained and is such a part of their behavior pattern that it, it ceases to even be a question. It's just uh, it's just their modus operandi. It's just how they function. Uh, and how do we address that? How do we get them to even admit that, that we, you know, as much as African Americans have a fearful reaction of whites because of our experience with them and their racial cruelty, uh, do they have the same, you know, aggressive 
you know, automatic attitude of reception of us because of, of you know, the, that being a, a historic part of their nature, just a, just a part of their nature. Uh, and that must be dealt with. This is what, what we saw in that tape was that man's nature playing. It was in his nature to behave that way towards a person of color. Uh, and, uh, and that really, to me, speaks to the sickness that's on our society, that you've got this institutionalized, this ingrained, this almost genetic uh, racism uh, and, uh, and subscription to the, uh, the precepts and the tenets of, of white privilege. And, I'm, and our women are paying the price for it. Our black men are paying the price for it. Our children are paying the price for it. It's a really, uh, it's a it's a hell of a psychic black tax on on black folks. Hmm. Uh, some of the the black females that were a part of this uh, meeting, uh, we're going to get them on the line as well in a, about two minutes or so. Um, I just wanted to uh, respond. Um, your answer uh, it seemed it seemed a bit contradictory. Um, and I'm, I'm processing it this way. If it is a part of white culture, it is a part of this white man, Stuart Farron, it's a part of his nature uh, to practice racism. And even even in your response, you use the term white privilege. And I, this is another one of the reasons that I encourage listeners, non-white people, not to use the term white privilege. Use the term that they had in the New York Times yesterday when they were talking about uh, the the centuries of lynchings against black people. They called it terrorism. That's what this is. That's what I saw in that footage with Dr. Orr. This is police terrorism, white terrorism against black people, non-white people. And I have a very difficult time uh, trying to process if this white man, even, I mean, the conscious unconscious part my initial reaction is, I don't really care <laughs> if it's conscious or unconscious. Oh, and uh, on that, we we on that we agree. I don't okay. think it negates the severity or the or the guilt at all. I'm just saying that, to be quite honest, maybe I should be a little less diplomatic. We have some people who are very sick, uh, psychologically, racially, uh, and they are empowered with these guns and badges, and they make these split second decisions. Uh, and you know, to me, racism is mental illness. Uh, you know, uh, voluntary, uh, more often than not. Uh, and, and yet we entrust these people with the, you know, life or death, maim or, 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 or be maimed, you know, powers that are, that are just, uh, it's, it is a police state. It is, it is domestic terrorism. You're, you're right about that. Okay. I just, as I said, if he is admitting, and to me, that seems very conscious. It didn't seem like he wasn't aware or he didn't understand colors. He understood and was able to verbalize publicly. I would not have treated Dr. Orr this way if she had been white. That just seems very conscious, very deliberate. Uh, Not that I would spend a whole lot of time on whether he did this knowingly or not, but that just seems like this guy is a racist based on his own testimony. Uh, I read uh, one of the articles where you were, were quoted after uh, the luncheon with uh, Mr. Farron and his attorney, Mel McDonald, uh, you said it would be very sad to put the family, uh, this is Officer Farron's uh, family, to put them in any economic harm's way, um, often said. So we will be calling today for the university to place him back on active status. Uh, given what you heard in that meeting and him saying what he did about he wouldn't have treated a white woman this way, 
why would you advocate for him to be returned to active status? Because uh, I have become familiar with both sides of the case and both of the person's personnel files. I, 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 uh, I say this with uh, a great deal of confidence. Both of these individuals, after reviewing that information, after reviewing, you know, the tests uh, and different evaluations that are relative to this encounter, I, I, I firmly believe that both of them are, would be very lucky uh, to continue their employment with the university uh, and, and have that opportunity. And uh, getting to know both of them, I know they both have mortgage payments, I know they both have uh, they both have lives. It's important to to keep that in mind. Uh, it would not be based on my understanding of the the facts and their background uh, in the best interest of the university or uh, or any reasonable person. Fire one and not fire the other. It's a very complicated and complex case, and I think that's why we haven't seen. Professor Orr in the media as much. I'm not saying that she deserved to be treated uh, that way, but there are other factors that directly relate to that stop uh, that uh, that I do think are relevant and that would call uh, the character of both people involved uh, their character into question. Hmm. Did you see anything in uh, Officer Stuart Farron's uh, file or any information that you've been privy to that would lead you to suspect that he has reformed himself and that there's a very low chance or no chance at all that he would go out and do something like this again or practice racism in any manner as an enforcement officer? Well, the first complaint against him was very different from this second complaint. So uh, while racism is a pattern itself. Uh, it's each of those encounters that he had were, were different. They were, they were patently, uh, patently different. And based on my conversations with the university about what they plan to do to retrain, uh, and, or offer assistance. And I say that with, you know, quotation marks, uh, to these two employees. Uh, you know, I don't think that this, uh, this will be repeated. In fact, I'm not even sure uh, that uh, that active duty means that he would be back on patrol, uh, uh, you know, investigating incidents and and, uh, and protecting and or stereotyping people on the campus of the university. I, I very I doubt uh, very seriously he will return to the position that he had before. Hmm. Okay. Uh, some of the black females that were at the meeting, uh, they too have, uh, I guess, commented about what they, what they heard from, uh, Mr. Farron, uh, during this luncheon. We want to see if we can add, uh, them to the conversation as well. Uh, folks will have to, uh, forgive the ring briefly, but we will be, uh, adding, uh, Renee, is it Hunt? Is that her last name? Renee Hunt? Huff is her last name. Huff? Renee Huff and, uh, Catherine McKinney. Okay. Outstanding. We will get, uh, Miss Huff on the program first up, and then we will get Catherine as well. Um, okay, we should have our 
dial going through right now. As I said, folks, uh, forgive the ring. And if you all have questions you want to ask Reverend Maupin, feel free to dial in. I'll give out the number once we uh, get in a few questions here a bit from uh, some of the black females that participated. All right. So we have uh, ring number one uh, coming through. Let's see. All right. Okay. Please leave a message after the tone. She, uh, I guess, wasn't looking for, uh, wasn't looking for us. Whoops. I think I uh, lost Dr. Uh, Moppin. I closed the wrong uh, line out. I will get Reverend Moppin back with us, and then I'll try one of the other black females who was present. Our call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. Give him a second to hang up. I'll try uh, the other black female as I'm waiting making me work a lot today, man. Okay. Give the ring and I'll try to get Reverend Maupin back as well. Person cannot be reached at the moment. Hmm. Please leave a message after the tone. After you, they're not doing right. <laughs> they got tied up, or whatever the case may be. We will get Reverend Maupin. Okay, this should be Reverend Maupin. most rings in the history of the program. Call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging Crazy. system. Crazy. Uh, I will give Reverend Mop in a second. Hopefully we will nab him back as well um i'll give everybody five minutes i've had but like i've just had uh, a lot of ringing in my ears uh for a good minute or so i'll give uh my ears a break and then i will try uh reverend Maupin back as well as uh the two uh black females uh as well i wanted to uh hear from them there's an article in the new york times uh just so i give a little space to to dial back there's an article in the new york times that was published uh, I believe two days ago, uh, David Brooks, he's a white man. He was writing about uh, Brian Williams. And he was saying that, uh, basically the gist of it, he was saying that he feels there's a pattern of if somebody commits an error, if a white person commits some sort of error and they get found out that they will be just excoriated and people will, oh, this person is terrible. They're the worst person ever and uh, and then the person will be required to come out and give some sort of apology 
And people will say, oh, that was, you know, a fake apology or they weren't sincere and they'll continue <laughs> to deride them and, you know, hush them away. And everybody will be pleased with themselves. And then uh, he was saying that this this is wrong. And, you know, everybody makes mistakes and we shouldn't be so quick to jump on, pounce on Brian Williams. Yeah, he might have told a fib here or there, but, you know, everybody uh, makes an error and, you know, we should we should be more forgiving. And he went, he went on to extensively quote Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. about, I mean, I was just cracking up laughing like, wow, <laughs> like, the Voltron effect is spectacular. Like, we must, 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 must always defend minimize white people practicing racism. They must be forgiven a second chance, a clean slate. And let's just try and go at it again. It, it, it reminded me of Eugene uh, DeCock, uh, prime evil in South Africa, uh, how they had some of his black victims. He had like killed their parents and what have you, blown them to bits so the body could never be found. And uh, they had them taking photographs, these black people taking photographs with him and saying, you know, uh, that's we have to be about forgiveness. We have to be about reconciliation like that is constant. Uh, that thread, that 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 thing uh, I was going to get at uh, or not get at, but just get Dr. Reverend uh, Maupin's thoughts on that. OK, we will give uh, a second. I will try Reverend Maupin first. Hopefully we can get him back so folks can get their questions in and then. Uh, I'll make one more effort at getting some of the black females with us. Okay. Reverend Maupin. See if he's with us. Not sure. Maybe he was uh, <laughs> done uh, done chatting it up with us. Um, I might give him one more ring back uh, in a second. I am disappointed with the, the black females. I wanted to hear what, what questions they asked because he said that they asked him some pretty, some pretty tough questions. Uh, Officer Farron, I'm talking about. Uh, in the meeting, they asked him some pretty tough questions uh, in terms of his behavior and so on and so forth. I really wanted to hear what they what they asked him and <laughs> what what impression they came with uh, after meeting with him. I'll give them maybe another five and I'll, I'll try once more. Um, yeah, that is drats. I didn't we didn't we didn't really get to to cover the two other cases. I wanted to make sure I include uh, included uh, Romaine, Romaine Brisbane, the black male. He was shot and killed by an enforcement officer. That was in December. Uh, that was the case where uh, I think it was right after the announcement was made that there was not going to be an indictment uh, for uh, Daniel Pantaleo, the white officer in New York uh, who choked uh, Eric Garner. Uh, it was right after that uh, when Mr. Brisbane uh, was shot and killed. Uh, they said that they, the officer thought he had a weapon and turned out to be uh, a pill bottle uh, that was uh, also in Phoenix uh, just a few weeks ago. And then uh, Michelle Cousseau, black female. Uh, this was over the summer. I think this was right before Michael Brown was shot and killed. All of that got started. I think it might have been in between uh, Michael Brown and Eric Garner, but uh, that was this past summer in August. Uh, it was a, a mentally ill black female, and she had a, a hammer. In fact, uh, the veteran that was just killed, he was in his 70s, black male, uh, that was just killed by enforcement officers. Uh, that happened like this week, a few days ago. It was pretty much the same situation where it was a black... <laughs> got disconnected. I think I actually remembered uh, what I was saying. So it, the situation with uh, Michelle Cousseau is very similar to the situation that happened with the veteran. Uh, this past couple days, uh, she mentally ill, black female, uh, she's in her fifties. Um, her 
mother had requested that uh, officers check on her. She had become uh, unstable. She was having some difficulties. No black person qualifies for mental health. Uh, the officers uh, went to check on her. Uh, I think they, I don't think she allowed them in. I think they uh, got a locksmith or person to come and uh, pick the lock. And uh, they went in. She had a hammer in her hands and they shot and killed her. And uh, they, you know, they, hey, it's justified shooting. She had a weapon. Black person with a hammer, of course, uh, we had to kill her. And uh, they were saying that this uh, was just a, a total uh, failure. I think there has been a lot of reports over the past six months or so since the Ferguson situation about mental health. Uh, and a lot of individuals who have mental health issues uh, end up being the victims of police terrorism, uh, disproportionately black victims. Um, but they were saying that there needs to be uh, more training, <coughs> excuse me, with regards to officers uh, doing a better job uh, of uh, dealing with uh, mental health victims. Uh, and that's something that I also, also do not suspect that uh, training is going to help uh, with regards to the racist component that is behind undergirding all of that. Um, and I think some of the people we've been saying with this, the case with uh, Michelle Cousseau, that they have uh, mental health practitioners, mental health officials who are trained to deal with this sort of emergency situation. Like that's their job. That's what they do. Uh, and one of the interviews, uh, Reverend Maupin, that was what he said. Why, why did this have to be? No, we got to go in right now. Guns blazing and gun down this black female. Why can't we just wait, you know, and dial properly trained officials who can come in competently and in a non-lethal manner, subdue this person so that they get the help that they need. That's the way that we should be going about this. I, I am of the opinion. I have concluded that's just not how the system of white supremacy operates. Um, I don't think that case got very much attention. Like I said, that happened uh, in August, as most cases of black people who have a problem with racism uh, up to and including being killed. Most cases don't get that much attention. But yeah, I don't think this got uh, very much detail uh, at all um, outside of the Phoenix, Arizona area. Uh, the Remain Brisbane uh, case, I think that got a brief amount of attention just because of the week that came out and then that died away too. I don't think that's something that people have followed or has, has kind of stayed on track. Um, I am uh, trying to make a decision uh, about if I want to make one more effort to call back. I'll, I'll give one more effort at uh, Reverend Maupin just in case I know folks might have had questions that they wanted to ask him uh, directly. I'll give it uh, one more shot with Reverend Maupin. I will uh, just assume either he was unable to go forward or maybe I was talking crazy. <laughs> maybe his battery died. Uh, whatever the issue uh, looks like, he will not be back with us. Uh, I will try the uh, black females quickly and uh, then I'll see some of the folks who I do see the hands. Sorry if you uh, are not able to get your questions in. At least I can get you uh, on the line if you want to share your uh, thoughts. Uh, let's see. This is Renee Huff. We'll see if she's available. Hello. Uh, greetings. Is this Renee Huff? Yes, it is. Uh, greetings. This is uh, Gus. Uh, we have a radio program, Reverend Maupin. I think we had spoke with him about letting you know you were invited if you wanted to share your views on what happened with the situation with Dr. Orr and the luncheon that you had with uh, Officer Farron. Is this sounding familiar? 
Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, we're on the air live. Um, did you, uh, I guess before, before we, we get to that, uh, is there anything that you would like our, our listening audience to know about you, who you are, and what you, work that you do? Um, are we on, are, I mean, can I be heard right now? Yes, ma'am. Oh, okay. Well, my name is Renee Huff, and I've lived in Phoenix for about 30 years. And um, I've been in education for many, many years, and about three years ago, well, actually, go back further than that, about six years ago, I got involved with an organization that uh, provided services, research, um, not research, but resources, and contact information and direction to women in um, the city of Phoenix and the surrounding cities as well. I met... Jared Moppin about a year and a half ago, I'd already seen him on TV, and I, as well as I have heard or had heard him speak on different radio stations, and um, I found out that he was running for a political office, and I went down and asked if I could participate. I wanted to kind of take a look at him up close and, you know, see what he was really about, and... He actually has a passion for some of the things that I'm really passionate about, and that is not only civil rights, but human rights as well. And so some of the issues that are taking place right now in the Valley, um, the, you know, the issues surrounding the police brutality, or I don't, I don't really like to call it police brutality. I just think that they are untrained and we are still operating, our police departments are still operating from training they received or that was provided for uh, police officers back in the 70s when I was a pre-teenager. And so I think a lot of the issue is, well, there are a few that I would like to mention just uh, based on my own views, is number one is that they hold all the power and that people in the community are powerless regardless of the situations we find ourselves in. And that means, um, you know, this country is based on you are innocent until proven guilty unless you're shot and killed by a cop or you're assaulted by a police officer or you're insulted by a police officer. So those things are, are quite worrying. Um, I remember my parents grew up in a time where Jim Crow had just, um, was no longer the rule of law, yet Jim Crow still lives with us today. So it's just a concern of mine as an educator, as a mother, as a grandmother. I had mentioned to Jared that I really don't want my grandson to have to be taught how to interact with a police officer so that he can stay alive. Um, when I grew up, police officers were the good guys. And so now I don't want the youth of today to grow up under the misconception that the police are the good guys because it doesn't seem to be that way anymore. So I think their training, um, their interaction with the community is uh, wanting. Hmm. Fascinating. Um, Dr. Uh, Reverend Maupin, uh, he was with us uh, for the first hour and uh, he kind of gave his understanding of what happened with the case of, of Dr. Orr uh, and Officer Farron. Uh, we talked about the 
luncheon, I guess, that was organized where yeah. uh, you, some other concerned black females, Reverend Maupin, uh, you all, everyone met with uh, Officer Farron and his attorney, Mel uh, McDonald. Uh, what were some of the, the questions that you wanted to ask uh, Officer Farron? Well, I had wanted to just make some statements and clarify for Officer Farron that his coming to lunch to sit down with members of the black community and, uh, you know, bringing along his mother and his attorney did not change most of our views on what we saw. Now, you know, there's a lot of discussion of what led up to the clip that we saw and how it all came about, and I'm, you know, pretty sure that the young man believes what he is saying, his statement, to him is true. But as an end result, I do not believe that the professor needed to be um, touched and, you know, thrown to the ground. So I just wanted him to know that he should have, you know, his day in court or, you know, uh, whatever it is that they choose to do to try to, you know, determine the finalization of or the outcome of the series of events that took place, but us having lunch together did not really, you know, Jared had made, uh, Reverend Maupin had made a comment that now he saw things a little bit differently after we had sat down and broke bread together, and I didn't see anything any different. I mean, it could have been a for as far as I was concerned, it could have been pretense, it could have been staged, it could have been an attempt. Not that the young man um, is a bad person, but I don't think that sitting down with somebody for an hour and a half and having lunch with them and hearing about the fact that they have some black people in their family or, you know, some of the other comments and statements that were made, I was still pretty much in shock, you know, when I did hear um, Reverend Maupin say that now he did uh, see things a little bit differently or he had a little bit more insights. Well, I used to be, um, you know, my passion in high school was acting, and I could go anywhere and sit in front of anybody and make them believe anything I wanted them to believe. So I think it, it takes a little bit more uh, forethought a little bit more digging and, you know, just um, a little bit more effort on the community's part to determine, uh, you know, uh, to come up with a difference of opinion, let's say that. And like I said, I'm not saying that the young officer is a bad officer. I do know that um, I was told that the professor had lost her job. I don't know if she forfeited it uh, from the events or if she willingly decided to leave. Um, I don't know what the outcome is for the young officer. I just think it was um, a terrible series of events that should never have taken place. I think the professor should have followed the instructions of the young man, regardless of the fact that she'd been jaywalking many times in the past or whatever that was about. If if she got stopped for the first time of 20, it's still wrong, and she should not have jaywalked, regardless of, um, you know, what she'd been doing in the past. 
but I also think that it, the whole event became way too physical. It should never have gotten that far. So that, to me, also has a lot to do with the lack of training of officers on how to actually deal with a belligerent person, keeping your personal emotions at bay, and, you know, going by a strategic plan, evidently. I don't know if it does or doesn't exist. But I just think it should have been happened, uh, should have been handled completely different. And my mindset is that, you know, hopefully when the whole series of events are played out, um, that both of them will have justice, whatever that is. Reverend Maupin said that during that uh, lunch meeting, uh, he asked uh, Officer Farron if he would have treated a white woman the same way that he treated Dr. Orr. And he said, uh, Officer Farron's response was no. And I said, wow, that's, that is fascinating. Do you remember that exchange? And if so, what was your... No, I, I didn't hear that actual question at all. Oh, okay. Um, he, he affirmed that today, so I trust, I don't think he would, he would make that up. Does that have any bearing, uh, on your, your thought about how all of this transpired? Well, if I had heard him make that comment, I would have uh, proceeded to ask him why and to clarify why he would have treated a white woman differently. Hmm. (laughs) You know, so I didn't, uh, hear that exchange. Otherwise, I definitely would have said something, I would have gotten involved, you know, interjected a comment to try to get him to speak further, and maybe they did, I don't know. I was kind of like put off by the whole situation, you know, the uh, media was there asking a bunch of um, repetitive questions. Well, uh, uh, Reverend Moffitt, now, you know, since you sat down and you've met this young man, do you feel differently about the situation? And do you, you know, and I was like, who does that? Anybody other than the media? Hmm. So I think that a lot of it was, um, it was a staging to me. And I did, you know, have a conversation with Reverend Moffin that I felt that it was not something that you could sit down with somebody in an hour hour and a half, eating chicken dinner, and resolve. Of course, we're all going to be laughing. Of course, we're all going to be at ease. Of course, we're all going to be, you know, looking at it with our happy faces on, and, you know, nobody wants to rub anybody the wrong way. You know, people want to look good on camera. This is just my take of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, having parents that were civil rights activists in the 70s and the 80s, um, it was a whole different situation back then. You know, we got they got beat. They were arrested. They were called out of their name. But yet my parents and their cohorts held their ground and kept their demeanor even. They dealt with their emotions, but they were trained. And so I don't see much difference when the police officers are uh, uh, confronted, um, you know, insulted, whatever they consider being attacked. Um, You know, nowadays, anything is a weapon. Anything that you have on your possession is a weapon. Whether or not it will kill somebody no longer matters. If you're holding, uh, you know, if you have something in your pocket that looks like um, a box or a brush or, 
you know, anything. It doesn't matter anymore. You don't have to, as the police officers, you no longer have to verify what it is in the person's pocket. You can just shoot them and say, my life was in danger. I, I thought that, you know, he had, he had a weapon. And it's just getting, it's gotten out of control. And, you know, it seems like all around the country, police are banding together to push back to say, we don't care what anybody thinks. You know, we are the rule of law, and we are going to do whatever we think we need to do to protect ourselves. But there should be some boundaries and some guidelines. Can't shoot a guy because he has a pill bottle in his jacket mm, without knowing, you know, without knowing um, something. I mean, is he attacking you? Is he... You know, close enough to do you bodily harm. I've heard so many cases where the people weren't close enough to even, um, you know, do physical damage, let alone take a police officer's life. And these people are getting shot. So I'm really concerned about the young people of today. You know, how do we address the situation with our grandchildren when we grew up in an environment where the police officers were our friends? They didn't have to like us. They could be prejudiced. They could have been whatever. But anytime we called the police in our neighborhoods, they came and they did their jobs. And it was not a huge concern that you had to keep your hands out. You couldn't, you know, jump forward. You you had to be careful of what you said so that you didn't make the police officer angry. It just escalated to a point where you don't know how to... Um, you know, you don't really know how to take law enforcement or officers of the law anymore. Yes, ma'am. I I just wanted to get back to the the luncheon uh, aspect because I thought that was important that you didn't didn't hear the uh, officer Farron when he said he wouldn't have treated a white person that way, a white woman that way. Uh, and your follow-up question that you would have asked in terms of why, because I, I asked Reverend Maupin that, and he said that it, it wasn't explained. He said he thought it was self-explanatory, but that I had the same question you did. Why would you treat a white woman different? Well, why not? Exactly. Why wouldn't you have picked a white woman up and threw her on the ground and handcuffed her? Exactly. Exactly. I wanted that explained, but uh, I, I also, I read, or I guess number one, before I get to this news article, um, who decided to have this meeting at Lolo's Chicken and Waffles? I'm not really sure about that either. I'll tell you how I got involved. Um, A text went out to a group of individuals that are involved currently in civil rights and human rights here in Phoenix. And I'm not really sure who sent it out. I'm pretty sure that whoever sent it out, it was on behalf of Reverend Moffin. And so I just saw the text information, and I scrolled down, and there was quite a bit of information about we want to meet this young man and hear what he has to say. And if you're interested in hearing what he has to say, and it says not necessarily an explanation of the events, but just you know, speak with him, meet with him one-on-one or something like that. And I jumped at the opportunity until I got there and I saw that it just, it, it didn't seem normal. It didn't seem natural to me. And I'll, I'll give you an example. If I go someplace and there is absolutely no media, 
I'm going to be me, but I'm going to be a different me. If you bring in, you know, people who are writing every word that I'm saying, taking pictures of me, you know, my hair is going to be coughed, my lipstick's going to be on, I'm going to be making certain that I'm listening to what everybody is saying, and this would be for not this type of an event, but any kind of activity. You know, you, you have your best face on and... I would have preferred that we met with the young man with all that, without all that fanfare so that he would not um, hesitate or he would be less reserved to say the right thing or say what he thought somebody wanted him to hear. Does that make sense? 1,000% crystal clear. Yes, ma'am. So I, I would have wanted to just sit with him and his attorney because at that point, I would have been more involved. I'd have been in everybody's face. <laughs> you know, I would have had my list of questions, and I would have, but with it being, you know, the media scrutinizing it, and I think there was a councilman there, and, you know, some other folks showed up, it just kind of turned into not a circus, but it just was not real to me. And so it kind of, like, wasn't a... a, a, a valid approach to pursuing any answers from this young man and his attorney. And so it invalidated it for me, and I just didn't participate the way that I would have had we just been a group of conscientious um, uh, residents having a, you know, conversation open and honest conversation with this guy. And I think had they done that, I would have participated more. I see. I see. Um, This is from uh, the Arizona Central. Uh, It's at azcentral.com. The report is Lemonade Summit, and they talk about that. They kind of spoofed uh, the beer summit uh, at the White House uh, from 2009 when President Obama had to meet with uh, Dr. Henry Louis Gates <clears throat> and the white officer uh, in Massachusetts when they had the arrest situation. Right, uh, So they right. called it uh, the Lemonade Summit at uh, Lolo's Chicken and Waffles. Um, they wrote that Renee Huff, a Phoenix community advocate who attended, said the officer and the professor he arrested, Ursula Orr, should be able to return to their lives. People make mistakes, she said. By God, we need to be able to forgive people. Uh, is that that's what you said to them? That was part of that was the end part of what I said to her. What was the beginning, or what I, was the part that she left out? Well, the part that was left out is when I mentioned that you know this was kind of like a, a ridiculous um, event taking place, and that I also felt that yes, depending on who's looking at what information it could it could be read or misread in many subjective ways that the whole situation would be subjective based on whoever was looking at it and uh, translating it and giving their view of what they saw and or heard and that it has gone on way too long and that it needs to be resolved so that these two people can get back to their lives. And the rest of what I said, she she put that verbatim, but she did not put the beginning part of it when I made the statement that I thought this was kind of like, um, you know, it was just 
it just didn't seem real to me. And, I mean, she, she could have put in there also that I was angry when I made my statements. And I was not angry at the young man or Professor Orrin. I was just angry at the whole situation, the way that it was playing itself out, because I'm a political science major, and I know I've seen so many court cases, and I've seen so many situations where, uh, you know, I have been involved with things in my family where what was presented in the resolution by the judge and the jury or whoever was nothing. It didn't have anything to do with really what happened from a human perspective, but it gets all twisted and and then what she put in there was the ending statement, that this has gone on long enough, somebody needs to make a decision as to what's going to happen. I did not feel Professor Ord should have lost her job. If this young man gets his job back, she should have her job back, um, you know, and they, it, it's time for it to be done with, and they need to be able to get on back to their lives, whatever that means. Hmm. This is... Uh... Ann Ryman, uh, who wrote the, the car, I guess she was the white female who interviewed you uh, for this piece, mm-hmm. who just included yeah. the, the last segment. I, I suspect that what she chose to omit and what she chose to include, I suspect that that could have been an act of racism on her part on uh, how she wanted to represent this whole event uh, as it played out. Um, I guess given that information, you said you didn't hear uh, if... Uh, Mr. Farron, this white male, said that to uh, Reverend Maupin that he would not have treated a white woman the way he treated Dr. Orr. If that's valid, does that change your view on whether or not you think he should return as an enforcement officer? Absolutely not. I mean, if he and, and why he would, you know, be if he's being honest and he's saying that, then he's saying that he cannot. Um, how would you say, he can't be objective when it comes to doing his job. And I know that nothing is difficult. Society is ugly. But I think if he can actually say no, if a, if a white woman, you know, got a little rowdy and, and refused to obey my command and, and uh, you know, kept talking back or whatever the situation was that caused him to put his hands on her, that he would not have done that to a white woman, no. I don't, I don't think he should be a police officer anywhere. I uh, agree 1,000%. You know, that that changes the whole scenario for me. He should not be a police officer because that is a large part. You know, confronting the public is a huge part of their sworn responsibility and obligation to protect the community. Mm. So, no, if he's going to just say that he would have treated a white woman differently... I mean, I would like to have heard what he said his reasons were and why, or why not. But, you know, I, I just think that's, that's kind of strange that he would even respond that way. Did he think that we would not be incensed? I guess he, he figured whatever, wherever that <laughs> statement was made, I guess he figured yeah. uh, everybody didn't hear it. I don't know how that played out, but apparently this was at 
Lolo's chicken and waffles uh, during this this meeting uh, where he said this. Uh, I think, unless you know, I, I I didn't understand correctly, but I'm pretty sure Reverend Maupin uh, said that you know he asked him this question. He said, yeah, maybe it wasn't there. Maybe you know he talked to him at a different point, but he said he asked him, and and that was his uh, response. And in my opinion, I, I completely agree with you. I'm I think there's a lot of frequently there's a lot of rhetoric. Uh, when we start talking about black people being mistreated, uh, that white people practicing racism against black people, oftentimes it ends up with, come on, black people, reconciliation, let's forgive, we can't hold a grudge, we can't fight hate with hate, and it just ends up being, well, let's absolve and forgive racists. And I think there's been way too, that's not how you solve this problem. You solve this problem by having what they call accountability. Uh, this guy- exactly you know, did this behavior that in my view was incorrect. It was not professional what he did. Uh, and then him saying that he wouldn't have treated a white woman that way. Like, absolutely not. This is someone who should not have a badge period. Ever. No. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I, I would hope more people, uh, get that out. there So people know that, like I, I'm of the opinion that a lot of people did not hear this statement. Him saying he wouldn't have treated a white female that way. Also, do, do you know anything about the history of, uh, Officer Farron's father, uh, John Farron, do you know anything about him? Uh, no, not really. They were talking about it, and we kind of tuned that out as well. As soon as I heard the statement, well, Officer Farron has black people in his family, I was like, what does that have to do with anything? Amen. <laughs> Amen. Why, 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 why would that be a selling point for him to produce that information to do what? To sway us to think, oh, somebody in his family is, is okay with, uh, you know, I know white people and black people that are married, and both of them don't like uh, the other cultures. Now, how you make that work, I'm not sure, but I have a personal friend that is a African-American, and she is married to a Caucasian, and I've talked to both of them numerous times, and I think a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, just being angry that, you know, these two cultures are not mixing well. They're not, they're not, there's no harm, well, I don't want to say no harmony, no harmony, but there's a lack of harmony at times because we are different. We, we have different experiences. And, you know, nobody wants to hear our experience. It's irrelevant. Three generations ago, my ancestors were owned by a human and considered less than human. They were considered animals. We're talking three generations ago. So for society to not allow us to tell our story, uh, we will continue to carry the baggage that we have. I don't care how much money you have and you can put your kids in private school or, you know, you work for Bill Gates or none of that stuff makes the hatred and the dissension and the contempt that you feel for what was perpetrated against your people, emotionally, it does not just go away. Mm. It, it just doesn't, especially to my generation. And I will be 60 in a few years, and so I, I look at my daughter and I look at my grandkids and I pray all the time, you know, Lord, um, you know, let this lesson and lesson and and because the feelings that I have, I reach out to people um, seriously in an effort to bring folk together. And I still know a lot of African-Americans 
um, in my generation that don't want to do anything with or for anybody. They just want to work with African Americans. They, uh, you know, they, uh, and it's because we've been hurt. And so it's very difficult to get around that hurt and for someone to say that society doesn't treat us any other way than what we deserve. Um, I think that is a forethought in a man's mind that a Mexican should be treated, you know, a Latino should be treated this way and an African-American deserves to be beat and whipped and denied his rights. And it's all just kind of like convoluted today. So you, you know, looking at the Ord case and you look at um, the Michelle, I believe her name was Michelle. Um, uh, Cousseau. Michelle was, Cousseau. Michelle Cousseau and and every other situation and all of my Caucasian friends say, but nobody cries when the police shoot a white person. I wonder why that is. I don't remember the police shooting too many white people, but uh, I I was going to ask Officer Farron, his father was also an enforcement officer, John Farron, and I found this. While I was doing some research, I, I found this. I just thought this was interesting. Uh, you can you can tell me if it means anything to you. This is from uh, phoenixnewtimes.com. This is from September of 1998, uh, almost 20 years ago. Uh, this story is the kind no one wants to believe, but everyone hears about. In June, an Arizona State University student accused a Tempe police officer of the worst kind of betrayal of his badge, the worst kind of violation of another person. Alvin Yellowhair, non-white male, says Officer John Farron, this is Stuart Farron's father, dragged him out of a police transport van, clubbed him on the head, sprayed him with mace, and then shoved a nightstick up his anus in an attack reminiscent of the much-publicized 1997 incident where a New York police officer sodomized a Haitian immigrant with a handle of a toilet plunger. The aftermath has engulfed more than just two men. Yellowhair filed a $10 million claim against Farron and the Tempe Police Department. The Maricopa County attorney, after an investigation by the Glendale Police Department, declined to press charges against Farron, who remains on duty. Uh, the article is pretty lengthy, uh, detailing the account of this uh, alleged sodomy by Stuart Farron's father when he worked for the Tempe Police Department. Had you heard this before, and what are your, your thoughts? Oh, Lord, no. I've never heard anything like that before. I, you know, I, I like to give everybody the benefit of the doubt, but I do understand that, you know, we take on a part of who our parents and grandparents are. And we tend to live some of those experiences in our lives. So I would hope that this young man, you know, whatever is going on with him, he would just be truthful and step down himself. But once again, as I mentioned, um, police officers hold all the power. And um, that is provided through the court system. So you can pretty much shoot anybody, harass anybody, uh, you know, the accountability factor is about a negative 10, and I think a lot of the police departments are shamed into, um, you know, the positions that they're in. Nobody wants to step up and be responsible 
when something goes wrong. So the easiest thing to do is to keep covering it up as long as you can. And it sounds like um, that's what happened with the senior Farron, and it's a possibility that that could be going on, you know, passed down to this son. Uh, we were going to try to get uh, Catherine, I'm not sure her last name. She was at the, the meeting as well, um, according to Reverend Maupin. I was going to try to get her as well, um, even just to get her, her thoughts on uh, Officer Barron saying that he wouldn't have treated a white woman that way to just to see if she heard it or not. We had people that dialed in with questions as well. Um, I don't know if, uh, are you interested in, in getting a question or two from listeners, if they had any questions about what you had to say before? You have to ask sure. Okay. Uh, any of the folks that are listening in, did you all have a question? This is Renee Hunt, a uh, black female. She was at the uh, Lolo's uh, Chicken and Waffles meeting, I guess, with Officer Farron and his attorney, Reverend Maupin, was there. Uh, folks have questions. The number is 760-569-7676. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you have questions. Uh, If we have listeners in the Arizona area, I'm not sure. If we have listeners, definitely should have some homework. There's a lot you can research uh, on this. I hadn't even heard before preparing for this program that Officer Farron's father was also a police officer and that he had been accused of anally sodomizing uh, a non-white male in his time as an enforcement officer in Tempe, Arizona. That is, wow. Terrorism, not white privilege. Terrorism. Uh, the person at three three five eight. Did you have a question uh, for Miss Hunt? Greetings, ma'am. Greetings, Gus. Greetings. Uh, my question was for the uh, Mr. Reverend Maupin. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, Reverend Maupin. But well, uh, you know, I think I can ask the. Uh, um, I'm sorry. What's your, what's your name again, man? Renee Hunt. Renee Hunt? Huff? Okay, Ms. Hunt? Ms. Hunt? Yes, I'm um, here. Did, did the officer ever say what he arrested her for? Did he ever say what? I can barely understand you. Did, did he say what he arrested her, uh, the, um, the uh, professor for? Did the young man, did the young officer say what he had um, arrested the professor for? Yes. No, he was never specific. Uh, He just stated a a series of events that took place that night. And he said that what we saw on the television, the film that was shown by the media, was just, um, a small part of it, but he did say that he had seen her, now if I'm not mistaken, he had seen her crossing the street illegally, which means she was jaywalking. And I believe he said he turned around and he went back to speak with her and that um, in their confrontation, verbal confrontation, she said something like, why are you harassing me? I crossed here all the time, and I'm sure police officers have seen me, and nobody else has ever stopped me to give me a ticket and or to make a comment or whatever. I don't know if he really tried to give her a ticket or not, but 
he at that point said, well, he was stopping her and that she needed to, you know, listen to what he was saying and I guess go back across the street and go to, like, a corner or some other legal crossing area and cross the street, and she refused. So he had another partner with him, and they tried to talk to her, and she got belligerent and, you know, quickly escalated into, um, you know, her saying some inappropriate things to him. He didn't say what he had said to her, but um, at that point, he had gotten out of his car, I guess, and come over to confront her or talk to her, and that um, he put his hand on her arm, or he went to... His memory served him. He put his hand on her arm, and she swung back. And he, I guess he thought she was going to hit him, and so that's yeah, okay. when he grabbed her. Mm -hmm. So when he put his hand on her, did he... So he thought he was going to arrest her? Um, he didn't say that. Okay, see, because according to the law, he has no right to put his hands on, on you or anybody or impede your, your travel, period. If he right. you committing a crime and he stopped you, you're under arrest. He should have saved that. Um, <clears throat> but you have the right to remain silent, remember? You see, so you don't have to tell up your, 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 your idea or anything. Unless he, he's telling you what you're, what you're under arrest for. You see, since he well, didn't, it's apparently not. did not tell her what he was, she was under arrest for, she didn't have to pro, uh, pro, provide any ID. Right. See, this this I is don't the final line that they keep running into and try to say uh, that they have a right to do this and they have a right to do that. But this is, they're, they're trying to put this under their immigration uh, so they can check immigrants. And they're trying to have have an excuse, but you have a fourth. This is your fourth amendment, I believe, right? Uh, right. Uh, under under the fourth amendment, that 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 you you have uh, if you are a citizen, you have rights. You have so called protection, and they can't. Police officers are not allowed to stop you unless they view you committing a crime. So if jaywalking is a crime, and she's the only one jaywalking, you know, then he might have something to say. But, it, but from the video, it looked like a whole lot of people was jaywalking. Right. While he was fighting with her. Uh, we uh, we are doing a little speech of mine. Did you have any other questions? or? Oh, <laughs> yeah, I'm just getting the, enough. Getting now, I wanted to also know what questions did, did she ask? Did you ask the officer uh, personally? Did I ask the officer any questions? Yes. No. I, I really, you know, after I got there and kind of like reviewed the situation and saw what was going on in my own um you know, thoughts and, and what I viewed was going on, I really didn't want to participate at that point because I felt like it was staged and it would be too easy for everybody to be on their best behavior. I thought we were going to sit down with this gentleman, you know, and his attorney. I didn't know the mother was going to be there. As a community, we wanted to ask him some questions to get his responses. And as I had... Uh, indicated earlier with all the media and the, I mean, it was just 
crazy. I've never seen that many reporters and cameras and stuff anywhere. And I've been involved in quite a few, um, you know, press conferences. But it was like, I don't know where the folks came from. But I just knew that it was not going to uh, net an outcome that I would consider valid. So I was kind of like hands-off at that point. I did speak to the one female reporter that walked up on me and asked me a question, but I didn't ask him anything. I I, I didn't feel comfortable after uh, about, you know, 20, 30 minutes in. I, I was not comfortable. It was not, to me, what I believed would have brought about um you know, an opportunity to, to learn anything new other than what had already been shared in the media. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you, ma'am, for your honesty. And, uh, Gus, I, I did hear the reverend say that he didn't think that the police officer was a racist on uh, on a uh, one of the interviews right supposedly after this meeting. Uh, uh, he said on a, on the, on a, uh, one of the television uh, stations, um, so, uh, can you hear me, guys? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Just make sure. All right. Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you, Matt. Thank you. Uh, the caller at one. Uh, I think. Well, caller one seven four nine. Did you have a question for Miss uh, Huff? Caller at one seven four nine. Did you have a question for Miss Huff? Hello. Yes, sir. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. How you doing, Gus? Thomas Smith from New York. Um, my question was really for the um the gentleman. Um, however, um, I, I do agree with the the lady that you have there that this thing was staged. Um, my questions were were more geared toward um toward me saying to the guy that I think that this whole thing that he that he concocted, you know, staged for whatever reason. But um, I have no questions for the lady. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll um, let the next person ask questions. Yeah, Reverend uh, Moppin, he was hanging out with us for, as I said, the first hour um, before we had you on the program. Um, I reckon I will check because I thought that was pretty important uh, in terms of the, the, the piece about him, uh, Officer Farron, admitting that he wouldn't have treated a white person that way. Um, I guess I'll try maybe once. Well, I don't know. We tried two or three times to uh, get Catherine uh, on the line as well. And uh, it's a little late. Can I still be heard? Yes, sir. I do have a question. Um, You said that you fight, you're both a civil rights leader and a human rights leader. And to me, one, one contradicts the other. Um, I I was trying to figure out how that works together. Um, I think that you don't have human rights because we've accepted civil rights. And um, I just want to know how you can work on both when one, to me, um, is the reason we don't have the other. Well, I said I was an advocate, and what I do do is I work with immigrants that come into the country um, here, mostly from Africa. And so they have a lot of human rights issues that um, they don't, they're not even familiar with, you know, their rights now that they are, preparing for citizenship, and we find that a lot of the agencies that receive them and provide them services, at times they can kind of cut corners because a Somalian does not know what he has available as far as resources to him. We step in and make sure 
and all of the resources, uh, education, housing, clothing, uh, food, and all those types of things are provided to individuals that are unaware that they even have the right to have them. And so... Go ahead. Uh, I was going to ask you, are you working toward um, African-Americans, people who, you know, always been here, um, civil um, human rights as well, or is this just for Africans from the continent? You know, because I, I see our human rights are being violated, um, like the gentleman who just said, I mean, um, the right to travel, things like that, that um, humans have we have been taken away from us here um, in America, so... You know, once again, I just wanted to know if you're working for human rights for African-American people um, in the U.N., like where the human rights thing takes place at, or is it just toward Africans from the continent? Um, no, I just, this past year I was asked to um, kind of give an overview involved with a, an agency that is uh, operated mostly by African-Americans, and they are... Uh, it's very specific. Uh, their outreach is to Africans that come here from the continent, but also Africans that come here from other countries that uh, are considered Latin America. But I have been an educator for most of my life, and my uh, biggest advocacy is in education here in the state of Arizona, and that is to try and work with some of the colleges to uh, help them understand that there is a huge institutional discrimination against minorities, especially black youth. And a lot of that, that's why I made a, a comment earlier, that we still live in an era of Jim Crow. And a lot of uh, white people want to say, or Caucasians want to say, that it doesn't exist, and it does. I sat on the other side of the desk, and I see it active and alive every day but they've become very proficient at hiding it and smiling at you and shaking your hand. And so my biggest advocacy in human rights for African Americans is in the educational system because I think they are failing our children every day. And if you can't get an education, you can't live in a proper housing, you don't have access to medical care, you're not eating appropriately, um, a lot of the people on the other side of the table just want to say, we, we choose to live that way. We, we want to be that way, you know. Are you fighting for those rights within the U.N.? Where human rights... In the U.N.? Yeah, that's where you get human United rights States? from is the United Nations. No, no, the United States is going to give us civil rights. The human right. rights come from the United Nations. So I'm right. asking you, are you fighting for human rights within the United Nations or are you fighting for them going through the court systems and things within the United States? Because that's not human rights. No, I don't, I don't deal with the courts. I deal with people, um, you know, one-on-one -on -one with the institutions here in this country. I don't, I don't get involved with the United Nations. That's not my fight. Oh. I want to touch and help people. Uh, empower people to learn how to step up and step out and take responsibility for, um, you know, their needs, but you have to, you don't know until you know. And so for those of us who are on the front line, that's where I work. And I'm going to bring you the information that you need so that you can participate prior to any 
um, situation with the courts. I don't have anything to do with the courts. I'm in the neighborhood. I'm in the in the barrios. I'm in the ghetto. I'm in the school system. I'm talking to um, the administrators that write the laws that become laws. And so I don't get caught up in all of the fanfare, but I do participate as a grassroots civil rights and human rights advocate here in the state of Arizona. Right on. Appreciate that. Um, good to hear from uh, Mr. Thomas in New York as well. Um, unless uh, there's anything that you want to share with listeners uh, before we let you enjoy the rest of your Thursday evening, uh, I guess I would uh, first I, I would make a request if you could out uh, I'll, I'll send you the MP3 of this broadcast so you can hear uh, Doctor or excuse me Reverend uh, Maupin. He was on the program for about the first hour. Uh, and he said to our listeners that uh, he asked Officer Stuart Farron if he would have treated a white woman the same way he treated Dr. Orr. And he said no. Um, and, you know, the, the exchange that we had around that, I'll send it to you so you have the proof in hand um, that he said this did happen. Uh, I would request if you could share that with as many black people in uh, the Phoenix area, the people that you talk to, if you know some of the other black uh, females or black people, period, that were present at that Lolo's Chicken and Waffles event um, that that was said uh, just so that more people know about that and they have that bit of information when they you know come to a conclusion about what they think about these events and what should happen uh, but is there anything that you uh, would like to, to make sure that you share with folks before uh, we let you go well I just want to thank the listeners and also the individuals that called in and I really believe that you know, in society today, everyone has to seriously take on accountability for what's going on around them. And oftentimes, people don't know how to do that. So for those of us who do know how to do it, even if we don't know and we just want to do it, we should reach out, you know, to our fellow brothers and sisters to inform them, enlighten them, and to assist them because... I run into my people every day that really um, don't know how to get involved. They come from an experience that has not provided them with the wherewithal, in other words, um, you know, wanting to care about it. And so I, that's why I think that, you know, there's certain levels of civil rights and as well as human rights and let's just put them on a scale as 1 to 10. Everybody wants to jump right into 7, and everybody's experience does not prepare them to jump in at a 7. But those of us who are at a 4 or a 5 are active in the community or have questions, ask somebody, get involved, find out what you can do to make noise, um, draw attention to the issue. If you feel uncomfortable doing it, go talk to your pastor. A lot of these black preachers nowadays, they, they take a hands-off approach. You know, if it doesn't um, take care of their congregation or it doesn't, you know, uh, do something specifically relevant to whatever it is they're trying to accomplish within their church family, they kind of shut it down and don't want to deal with it. And then when uh, a situation like uh, Cousseau getting killed or, um, you know, the professor being harassed, it just becomes another news story. And it's gotten to the point where we are sitting back and we are just allowing 
uh, society to railroad us and run over us and just uh, taking it and thinking, well, that's just the way it is. And um, I would just like to, you know, encourage people to do what you can. And if you don't know what to do, then ask somebody that even looks like or, or gives a perception that they have an inkling of an idea of how to get involved to bring some justice to our community because it is long overdue and many people are really tired and fed up, you know, with with uh, the lack of justice in all communities. Appreciate that. Um, <clears throat> hopefully folks will step up to your, your challenge and uh, we will look forward to... Uh, being in touch with you down the road to kind of see how some of these situations uh, resolve themselves uh, and just getting an update. But hopefully, yeah, if you, I'll, I'll get that MP3 to you so you can share, so you can let black people know that he did, uh, Officer uh, Farron did say that he wouldn't have treated a white woman the way he treated Dr. Orr. But thank you for sharing. And I will make, I will make sure that the next time I have an opportunity and the media, excuse me, the media is around me, I will bring it up. Wonderful. <laughs> I will bring it up. It will be addressed again. Yes, it will. Outstanding. Outstanding. Please take excellent care of yourself. Continue your outstanding work and uh, look out for that sound clip. It is coming to you so you'll have the evidence in hand. All right. Thank you so much and God bless you. Yes, ma'am. Take good care. Have a good night. You too. Context of white supremacy. Wow. Part of me feels like I should try Reverend Moffin again, but I don't want to uh, pester. And uh, the other black female, I'm, I'm interested to see if she if she heard this statement as well um, about uh, him. I mean, that would have been that would have been the whole dinner. Like I wouldn't have <laughs> I wouldn't have cared how many press media was there. Like that would have been the story. Like Negro disrupts uh, dinners at Chicken and Waffles, uh, asking white man questions about racism. Like that would have been the uh, the story. But uh, I'm I'm really glad that we were able to do this program because I learned uh, quite a bit uh, just studying some of these incidents. Like I said, they didn't get uh, as much attention. Uh, the situation with uh, Dr. Orr, uh, I paid attention to it initially, and then it kind of fell off and I wasn't thinking about it. And then I started paying attention to it again when I started hearing some of these different uh, interviews, uh, Reverend Maupin and then his attorney uh, on uh, KTAR in Arizona. I played several of them on the compensatory call-in uh, that kind of got me thinking about this situation again uh, to get him on the program. I'm, I'm so glad that I did just, uh, if nothing else, two bits of information that I have not heard in this narrative in the, I guess, eight month saga of all of this, that officer Farron's father was also a police officer and that he was accused of anally raping a suspect, non-white person who had been arrested. I had not heard that at all. And if people think that is relevant in any way, shape or form to what transpired between Dr. Orr and Officer Farron, suspected race soldier, that's one. And the second piece being uh, Reverend Maupin. And he he told me that last week. That was the whole reason that I wanted to have him on the program to hear what exactly happened where you know, now he's taking the position that he, he doesn't think this guy is racist and he should get his job back. Like what, what was said at this magical 
meeting. And he said last week, he said that uh, Officer Farron said that he wouldn't have treated a white person, a white woman, the way that he treated Dr. Orr. And I was like, wow, I haven't seen that in any of the news reports about all of this and the interviews. They're just, you know, really amplifying that, you know, this black guy, he doesn't think Officer Farron's a racist. He changed his mind and he thinks he should be. Re- that's, you know, the only thing that they're really playing up and amplifying. Um, so when he said that, I knew I definitely wanted to get more details, but um, that particularly talking to her and realizing she didn't know this, like that is like, whoa. Um, I guess all I can really say is white people are very, very good um, at number one, the Voltron effect. I think the white people on the radio station uh, being involved and, you know, getting the attorney, giving him airtime so he can get his story out. And they had a whole segment where they talked about Reverend Maupin when he, you know, had after this meeting and decided that, you know, he didn't think this guy was racist and blah, blah, blah. They had a whole segment uh, to blow that up. White people really working together. Uh, as Mr. Fuller always says, white people don't get fired. They get transferred. Most often they don't even get fired. Um, the Initially, they were not going to terminate Officer Farron ASU. Uh, And then months down the road, then it was announced that he was going to be terminated. They delayed. He's been on paid administrative leave uh, the whole time. And they have been really blowing up. This is a human being. This is a white man, (laughs) like equating those like just it's understood being white human. You're supposed to empathize with this man, this white man. They uh, apparently his uh, suspected racist wife. She just had. Uh, another child. And so they played that up. And I think his wife might have been at this uh, meeting, but really playing that up, that this is a family of law enforcement and this is a great young white guy. And we don't want to put that in one of the articles that even said, you know, he's under so much uh, stress right now. And how is he going to take care of his family if he loses his job? And the whole not like I, I, I should have asked if he's got some sort of uh, fund like Darren Wilson uh, got uh, and even Daniel Holtzclaw where he's getting thousands of dollars, even hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, for slamming this black female, black professor uh, on the ground. But uh, they really have played that angle up. So uh, I'm, if, if for nothing else, I'm glad to have gotten those two bits of information out uh, and that it seems that, you know, some other black people that were intimately involved with all this, they didn't they didn't know that at all. Uh, to me, I can just say it sounds like this was very much an orchestrated event. Um, just Lolo's chicken and waffles like that. And I guess if nothing else about being serious, this is terrorism. This is not white privilege. This is not something where we can go to the bar and kick back a few and try to work. No, uh, we are going to be serious. Uh, I mean, you do have situations where uh, enemy combatants, they will come and have a meeting, have it, but it's not going to be at the club. It's not going to be at the bar. <laughs> it's not, it's likely not going to be at Lolo's chicken and waffles. I feel like the, the, just the tackiness of, of whites, it seeps through with everything. I can totally see them uh, saying we will be able to get a situation where we have uh, some sort of reconciliation banquet and they have a video. I'll post it so you all can watch it uh, from this whole affair. <laughs> it's uh, azcentral.com. It's titled uh, Lemonade Summit. Civil rights activists want ASU officer reinstated. And it's got a photograph. Oh, well, there's a video so you can watch that. But then it's got a photograph of Reverend Maupin sitting with Officer Farron, who's smiling and, and chucking it up. And 
Uh, it's got black and white photos in the background with, uh, you know, famous black people. Um, and then it goes on to give details. It's got that quote that I read uh, from uh, Renee Huff, uh, where she said that they didn't include the part where she said she was angry about all of this and she felt it would they left all that. And they would be uh, the white suspected race soldier who authored this piece and Ryman. But I'll post it so you can check it out. But it just seems like a really uh, skillfully crafted event uh, to support this suspected race. So, and I mean, really him, I mean, what he said, that would take the suspect out for me. I mean, you are blatantly in my view, admitting that, yes, I am a racist with a badge and a gun. That's what you're admitting to me. At any rate, uh, it just seems really skillfully uh, orchestrated. So then and you can have the press. This is what domination looks like. You control all the media outlets. So it's very easy for you to get this story out. You have it on AZ Central. You have it on uh, KTAR. Uh, you have it on other websites. So it's in the paper. It's on YouTube. Blah, blah, blah. So we blast this. Yeah. Lots of black civil rights advocates <laughs> coming out and saying, yeah, we want this officer reinstated. And we had a great banquet uh, at Lolo's Chicken and Waffles. And we talked it out and it was great. We got the pictures here. Let's look at us. We're holding. I mean, they are masters. Uh, and when we talk about masters of deception, there you go. There you go. Um, man, <laughs> they, uh, I would not, if anything, I would expect that uh, this officer is going to be reinstated and probably promoted. And he probably got some sort of fund on the side as well. So all will be well. And uh, Dr. Orr, I would look for anything, uh, whether the suit is thrown out, whether she's terminated, uh, maybe they'll wait, you know, four or five months down the road and decide, you know, we're going to get rid of her. Um, nothing would surprise me uh, with regards to racism, white supremacy. But I'm glad to have more details about how all of this played out. I think sometimes that can be that. Can, that's why I said, like reviewing the people paying attention to Ferguson. That's something that a lot of black people paid attention to review. Six months down the road, a year down the road, look at they're doing that. They've been doing a lot of that this week. They've been having the six month review. If you go to uh, any of the St. Louis uh, media publications, they've been having these big, long talks and assessments of how things have changed. Uh, what's different? Have things improved? Law, the whole nine. That is very important. I think that should be a huge aspect of uh, how we go about the science of counter racism. You review if you have a theory on what's happening, you review. If there are incidents that you pay attention to, you make that they have what they call a case study. This could be a case study. How does this play out? And you could just track one of these events, you know, and see how it evolves. But just that right there, that is that is even worthy of something to write about. I keep saying uh, ideas to write more. That is something that I'd be like, wow, that that should be written up. How all of that played out the dinner. Uh, Lolo's chicken and waffles and him saying this, a lot of black people not hearing it, how this story gets written up, what gets left out. That right there is worthy of analysis so that we can be much sharper, have a much deeper understanding of whites are not ignorant. This is not a training problem. They are proficient. They are skillful. They are methodical, scientific in the practice of terrorizing black people, even at Lolo's chicken and waffles. Um, I will, uh, I reckon hit the phone lines, although I do feel like I should try and call <laughs> this other black female to get that information to her, but I will, I will check in to see if folks have, um, anything they like to, uh, share. Um, the, 
I saw we had uh, listeners in the D.C. area. I hope they got to visit Dr. Welsing's lecture. Uh, that was today, the second Thursday of the month. I hope folks got to go uh, so they can give us a report uh, down the road if they heard anything uh, constructive. Um, I had, uh, I'll also make sure I post that article as well because it was right in line. It's so much of that. That's a big aspect of their charade when they put on these type of banquets and events uh, for some sort of reconciliation and white redemption. Uh, they are are very skillful uh, at getting the word out, making sure they get the optics correct so they get the black person uh, up in front to to do all of that. Uh, one thing I did want to get in uh, as well from the program yesterday about uh, definitions. Ashlyn Sullivan, the white woman, suspected racist, although she's doing maximum racist aggression. She didn't or she had a, a different definition of racism. And when I gave my definition at later on in the program, she said uh, the definition that I use for racism, according to the Google definition for racism. And I would have said something about that. We had a lot of callers, uh, but that I thought was very important. People might try to bully you in conversations if you give a definition of racism that is not what is in Webster's or the Oxford Dictionary or whatever other source, generally a white source that people go. Do not let people bully you about that at all. Make it very clear. Number one, words and definitions end up in those books just on the basis of word usage. Uh, it's nothing mystical uh, like some little language elf comes out of the hills uh, and writes these books that are, you know, sanctimonious and sacred. I mean, that's not how language works. It's just based on what are people using. So if enough people start using my definition of racism, it could very well end up in those uh, dictionaries that you cite. And even if it doesn't, that is irrelevant. People make up their own definitions for terms all the time. People make up new terms all the time. There's nothing incorrect about that at all. So never allow anyone to bully you in a conversation. So then saying, well, oh, the way you defined uh, racism or any other term, uh, that's not the dictionary's definition. Duly noted. And that's why I'm clarifying and making sure that everybody is aware that I have a different definition of racism or whatever the term is. And that's the definition that I'm applying every time I use the term. And I might even remind you of that during the course of our discussion so that there's no confusion. But I thought that was important from yesterday. Anywho, um, the folks that dialed in, I guess we'll get the people who did not get a chance to ask or comment yet. Uh, if you all had anything you wanted to, uh, to share, uh, your lines should be open to people we have not heard from yet. Can I be heard? Uh, we'll get the female first. Okay. Would that be me? I reckon so. Yep. <laughs> okay, thank you. Good evening, everyone. Well, gosh, gosh. Um, a lot of good talking points there you gave. Um, it kind of like stole some of what I might want to say. I don't want to be redundant. Um, but one thing that uh, concerned me is, um, and I don't know if it was, maybe said earlier, earlier, I hope not, because I don't think I missed too much of the show, but that is that um, when we go into um, meetings, um, this is just a comment, just my humble opinion, as it were, uh, it's good for us to go into meetings and to show up and be involved, but sometimes um, I've had the experience and I've seen, I think perhaps all of us have seen, even when we watch uh, people on TV or we've been in meetings, Boy, it's really horrible to go into a meeting unprepared, you know. I guess sometimes it can't 
be helped, but just like the point you made about the um, um, police officer's father, I mean, wow, would that have made such a brilliant uh, point to have been brought up um, in the meeting, been brought up tactfully, you know? Then, um, so um, it's kind of like we go into these meetings sometimes, and uh, as you said, um, people, other people are prepared. They have the history, and we don't even know what we're going into, and then we just get, like, run over, you know? And I think, when um, this is my experience sometimes, uh, just because of our limited access to information, et cetera, um, we may think that, you know, that we are knowledgeable in certain things. I think that's why it's good to, like with the show that you have and other groups, um, that we do do critique where we kind of um, uh, respectfully um, maybe help one another to understand maybe some of the fallacies of our thinking and logic. It's good practice to be able to do that with people because that's how we grow. Sometimes we think we know subjects. I mean, I know if you've lived long enough, you know, you may think that, oh, I really got this, I understand this, and you find out later on that you don't know that as much as you think that you know. Um, and the other thing that um, I heard um, the um, last speaker um, say, well, I guess he was pretty much the only one because the other guy kind of like, I don't know, went somewhere. <laughs> but um, she, if I heard it correctly, she was talking about police officers, and she was saying that, um, then in her generational cohort, I think she said she's like 60 or whatever, that in her, maybe when she was a child or whatever, at some point in time that police officers were considered friends or helpful or I don't remember the exact words she used, but I think that was the gist of what she was saying. And, you know, I think I know a little bit about history. I don't profess to know at all, and I, I really don't know hardly anything about Arizona. But... I don't know. I, I can't relate to that. I'm trying to understand, is it something particular or distinct about Arizona? I mean, when were, you know, police officers ever friendly towards black people? Because if she, like she said, like three generations ago or so, I mean, we didn't even hardly have black people. Black men weren't even, men or women, weren't even on the police force, right? I mean, um, that that time they were still, weren't they still considered slave catchers? I mean, I'm trying to think that it's pretty much like after um, doing this, you know, civil rights struggle and during that period, 50, 60, you know, so on thereabout, that even blacks began to be on the, the um, police force, you know. So um, I guess one of the things that really, besides, oh, God, I had to stop laughing about the, I, I know it's not funny about Lolo's chicken, but just that idea right there would have, once I knew that there was going to be a meeting at Lolo's Chicken and Waffles, I'm like, excuse me, you know, that would have, like, taken me somewhat aback. But um, I, I just, uh, besides that, the other point would be that if we go into these meetings and people sometimes ask us to come into a situation, we should very much try to know as much as we can about the situation. And um, I think I might have just kind of excused myself once, um I, if I were suspicious, as she uh, suggested, about what was going down or that they were going to do a Rambo thing, you know, or a Voltron, and I was going to be, like, outgunned, I mean, I would have kind of, like, I would have excused myself rather than be part of that. But then that's just my perspective. I don't know the whole scenario. That's kind of, like, what I wanted to add. Thanks for letting me get my comments. 
appreciate that. Uh, the other folks who are with us uh, who had uh, hands up, do y'all have anything you want to share? Hello? Yes, sir. Yeah, I just wanted to add, I heard a previous mail caller mention the Fourth Amendment, and I just wanted to give everybody a heads up. There was a recent decision just handed, just handed down December 15, 2014, um, from the U.S. Supreme Court on the Fourth Amendment, uh, which says a police officer who stops a car based on reasonable, though mistaken, understanding of the law does not violate the Fourth Amendment. And when you really get into the mechanics of it, it basically just says that uh, uh, police really don't have to have a reason to stop you or put their hands on you or do anything. So they've already got, they've gone ahead and refined that and uh, put it in the law up here by the, fourth, I mean, up here by the Supreme Court. It was uh, voted on 8 1, and no Clarence Thomas was not the lone dissenter, married to a white woman. Um, I think the lone dissenter was Sonia Sotomayor. That's all I want to add. All right, all right. Uh, anybody else who didn't get a chance to speak already? The caller that is using the flash phone. Were you just listening, or did you have something you wanted to share? Okay. Hello, Blake. Hello. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, you know I'm putting the baby to bed, so I'm just listening right now. All right. On. I'm trying to be as quiet as possible. Understood. All right. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Reverend Maupin, he did. Uh, it was his idea to have the black females. Uh, on the or actually, I'm trying to remember, <laughs> make sure I'm not cheating myself out of something I can take credit for. Uh, that was my idea. Excuse, that was my idea. Uh, but he was he was open um, when he mentioned that because um, he brought up that it was this group of, of black females. He he gave a different presentation in the way she presented it, but whatever. Um, and saying that it was a group of black females who had questions about all of this, and so they went to. And I was like, yeah, they, it would be great to to have them on the program as well. Uh, and he agreed. Um, so he was he was definitely down, even though it wasn't my idea. He was he was supportive of that. But I'm I'm very glad um, whites are, are super crafty, man. You really have to uh, <laughs> you really have to be on your P's and Q's uh, and those type of things because they just they are so skillful with their use of uh, words and how they are able to present things, particularly around racism. It's it's just once they kind of get you in that vein of, hey, we need to be forgive and forget and let's hold hands and. Dr. King and all, I mean, it's, yeah, it can get, it can get bad really quick. That's why it's very important just to be codified. This is not about us being friends uh, and even talking about it in that sort of way. Like just being honest, uh, we want due process, correct things happening. This guy has stated that he would not have treated a white woman that way. Is that correct? Should someone who thinks that way be allowed, be authorized to use lethal force, have a badge, go out and operate as an enforcer of law. Should we have someone who thinks that way as a police officer and just let folks answer questions. That's last man. <laughs> like uh, that should be the way we go every time. Like just bam, we got our question exactly as the, the female caller said, if it had not been such a 
circus type atmosphere uh, or media frenzy, as, as she was saying, with all these folks being present and kind of taking dictation uh, with regards to what what is being said. Uh, even in that environment, I would say be prepared to ask your questions like that just being codified and this is what it is. So they can they can write down. These are the questions <laughs> that I ask. If I had any statements after I got my questions answered, so be it. But uh, in any environment, just, hey, wherever it is on the world stage, I'm, I'm prepared. I have my questions and ready to roll. I think that would do a lot uh, in terms of helping us work against racism, white supremacy. Um, even how you talk to reporters, because I thought that was interesting. That's why, man, this is like a whole report that can be constructed here about just this whole event and how it's how it's transpired over the last month. I think most of these things happened uh, the course of, I guess, December through February. Uh, the luncheon thing that happened at the end of January. Uh, some of the interviews that spurred the luncheon, they happened in December and January. So, yeah, it's a lot. But that, that article um, written by the white woman where she left out the black female getting her uh, her assessment that this was all a, a lot of malarkey, uh, of course, being left out of the report as well. That also the importance of uh, black journalists. I was thinking of that as well uh, to be able to get more of that information out because white people are definitely going to use all of their media outlets to support, refine, re-entrench the system of white supremacy. Uh, did anybody... Any of the other folks with us have anything else they wanted to uh, get in about what they heard? Reverend Maupin, uh, later female caller, uh, Renee Huff, uh, anything about all this? Hey, Gus. Yes, ma'am. I have a quick question. Did you, I sent you an email last night. Did you get an email uh, about uh, uh, something about homosexuality? Yes, ma'am. I did. I did. Uh, about yeah. What did you What did you think about it? Uh, I, I think it's accurate. I'm pulling it back up, so I'll be able to quote it directly. But uh, yes, the anti-sexual agenda. Um, her Amy Goodman, my BFF. Her her three favorite topics: uh, the homosexual agenda, climate change, and bashing President Obama, and doing it indirectly. Um, I find the media, <clears throat> uh, white media pushes anti, uh, mostly black couples and interracial couples. That's what they had on Democracy Now! yesterday. They had a black uh, couple to represent the struggle for uh, gay marriage in the state of Alabama. Um, and the new video, I didn't get a chance to watch the video yet. But okay, cause I, was, I was curious if you saw that video or not before. It reminded me just... Everything because when I read it, it was like I, I felt like I had already seen it because they did a report on NPR that was also on Jamaica and it was the exact might even be some same people. Uh, but it was almost verbatim the same thing where they were it was a black male who was gay in Jamaica. Uh, and he was with uh, he was in a sexual relationship, I think married to a white man. Um, but they were talking about. Of course, uh, black people are homophobes in Jamaica and, oh, this is horrible and blah, blah, blah. And then this is like a 15 minute interview about halfway through. They have to concede that, well, black people mistreat black people in Jamaica generally. So you really can't say that uh, the 
quote unquote, gay black people are being isolated or, you know, something's really bad for them because just black people, you know, are killed and robbed and all kinds of stuff uh, happens here on a regular basis. They did not attribute that to racism, white supremacy, but that is what it is. But they quickly got away from that and went back to, oh, the homophobia is terrible and we need to do something about this and gay rights, LGBTQ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I have seen that before <laughs> worldwide. And even the report that you uh, that you shared with me, what is this young and gay Jamaica's Gully Queens. Yeah, yeah, because that, that it's, it's a different video. Cause this is about like a, a group of homosexuals that live under a gully, like a, almost like a, a place where sewage goes. And uh, this, as I said, this European from like, I think he's from England, came down there and talking about how uh, they're being uh, marginalized. And that's the reason why they live under the gully. So he's going around to these uh, different, like, police officers and, you know, politicians and stuff like that and asking them, you know, why this community being, is being marginalized. And <laughs> he, 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 um, he also was just, uh, interviewing a, a, a different homosexual guy uh, in Jamaica. But this guy was not uh, poor. You know, he was like a supposedly middle class. But he was a homosexual. So he's saying that, you know, they get treated like that because, because they're poor. So I'm like, so, the, 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 so when, I, when I'm watching the video, I'm like, so basically what you're saying is they're not being marginalized because of their homosexuality. They're being marginalized because they're poor. In Jamaica, poor people get marginalized. You know what I mean? Because, you know what I mean? The poverty is like... <laughs> You know, I mean, it's it's a very poor country. You know, what I mean, and um, so it's like it's almost like a they, they, this 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 white guy is is just uh, spreading this propaganda of of uh, of this community being marginalized to the point where it's almost like people are going out to to seek them and and to beat them. And that's not the case. At one point, he had um one of the guys on the uh, the corners on the road waving a, a rainbow flag, and I'm like, yo, this is this is. America, like this—it's really America. I've heard this term called openly gay. I don't know even what that means. To be openly gay, so I'm like, instead, this black male is on is on the corner waving his flag. You know, what I mean, he needs to <laughs> get himself together. You know, what I mean, and get a job and 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 and, and find a way to better himself. It's a living under the gully because the, the police officer is also telling the, the white guy that these people that live under the gully, some of them are like they're thieves. You know what I mean? So people attack them because they're they 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 they're stealing from them. You know what I mean? They had this like, and also in the video he has this uh, transgender uh, male on the on the roadside, and you know he's been he's been videotaped. And I'm like, okay, if it's so bad in Jamaica. How can you be making a video on the roadside and nobody's beating you? There's no crowd around you? How's it that bad? You know what I mean? And also, I, I, I didn't get to put this in the, uh, in the email, but I mean, the face of transsexuality in America right now is that lady from Orange is the New Black. You know who I'm talking about, right, Gus? Laverne Cox. Yes, ma'am. Laverne Cox. There you go. There you go. And I realized in, even in that show, a lot of the, uh, the actors in that show, or really homosexuals in real life. That black girl, she called, she's played uh, 
I think her name is Pussy in the show. She's in a relationship with like the, the producer of the show of Orange is the New Black. You know what I mean? They, they're pushing that agenda really, really, really hard on like a worldwide basis. You know yeah. I, mean? I, I yeah. totally agree. I do not uh, watch Orange is the New Black. Uh, that's another on the uh, do not watch, watch uh, list. I don't want those toxins uh, in my brain. Uh, I knew what that show was going to be about when I saw the title uh, and when I just found out who the suspected race soldier was, the white woman who put that show on because I, I was familiar with her work. So I knew what to uh, expect. I would not uh, encourage anyone to watch it. And I think that's one of those things. It's on Netflix that it's very easy for people to binge watch uh, that sort of program because I think they'll release like a whole season at a time. So people will just sit around for like two or three days and watch uh, all the episodes. I would not encourage uh, that. Reading is more important than watching television. Uh, I would not encourage watching it at all because it's just filth. But yeah, I totally agree. They are they're pushing it very hard. I even... Uh, the Dear White People, that was one of the first red flags where I knew that was going to be uh, a monstrosity and something that further supports white supremacy. Uh, just when I first heard number one, that the person, uh, Justin Simeon, the person who uh, is reported to have produced this film uh, as a gay black male. Uh, and then that's a part of the script I already that was pretty much it for me. And then the, the rest of what I heard down just confirmed. Now I've seen it. So I can say, yes, conclusively, this is something that is not constructive and supports racism. But they're doing an excellent job with that. It's global. It's consistent. And, uh, yeah, you just have to call it out for what it is. Um, but, yeah, I assume folks, uh, folks are all good. I wish we had uh, been able to keep Reverend Maupin a bit longer uh, for folks to be able to ask. Uh, questions. I was thinking, like, did he think we were, uh, or me, I guess he didn't get to, to speak with any of the callers. Did he think like, oh man, this, this guy is crazy. I am getting, out of here. I was like, cause I thought we didn't really, we didn't really say anything that, that out of, uh, out of line. It seemed like there was a good bit of, uh, agreement. Um, I didn't really, or I don't, I do not agree with his, uh, assessment, his written statement that he thinks this white officer, uh, Farron, Stuart Farron should get his, uh, I do not agree with that. Uh, and him saying that he doesn't think that this guy's a racist anymore. I don't agree with that either, but, um, yeah, maybe his, I don't know, maybe his battery went dead. Maybe he wasn't. I wanted to ask him that. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. I wanted to ask him that question. <laughs> he assessed that he wasn't a racist anymore. Thomas in New York, did you have something you were going to add? Yeah, um, yeah, I had a, a few quick things to add on. The the, 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 the reverend, I think he left because, um, like you said, he realized that this wasn't going to be a, a typical Easy Coast interview. He was going to get a little pushback. And I think he was lying about, I mean, it's impossible for the rest of the people not to hear that comment. You know, um, I wouldn't have done this to a while. I think he was lying about that, and he didn't want no one to say that. Um and the the meeting at the restaurant. I, um, do you recall Gus when um, Al Sharpton had the meeting with Bill O'Reilly at Sylvia's on 125th yeah. Street? Yeah. And then afterwards, when I, he went back and said, "You know, I was surprised they didn't say curse words to each other and stuff." I mean, so it, that was just a clown move. 
It's just a stupid. I mean, why would you want to meet with someone? A video I saw, there was no doubt in my mind he was just another racist cop. I don't need to meet with him. Um, so the lady who just spoke, you know, she was saying Jamaica's a poor country, man. Jamaica's wealthy, full of natural resources like aluminum, huge tourism industry. Um, in a culture that sells all around the world, it's just that the white people control all of that. So they don't get no, you know, like everywhere else in the world. And, um, lastly, um, Dr. Francis Crest Wells, and I heard the other day she's going to be in New York, in Harlem, and I plan on seeing her, I think it's April 1st. So, um, I just wanted the other listeners in New York to know that. Great. You get uh, details. I guess you can share so folks can uh, figure out they need to get tickets or where it's going to be at time and all that good stuff. Folks will have uh, advance notice. You can prepare April 1st, almost two months away. I'm sorry. Let me just jump in real quick. Man, Jamaicans don't own nothing in Jamaica, man. I mean, people are buying like mountains in Jamaica. Like, it's crazy like that. You know what I mean? Like, tourists, like, places that tourists go, I have never been there. I can't afford to go there. It's for white people. Hedonism, all those places, it's not for, it's not for Jamaicans. It's for Europeans. You know what I mean? We, we make, you know, we make nothing else <laughs> off, of, off of resources that we have. You know what I mean? So, we're in a bad position. You know, IMS, you know what I mean? The World Bank, you know what I mean? We're in debt. We don't produce nothing. We're important. You know what I mean? We're in a bad, bad, bad position. You know, we like to make money off our music. You know what I mean? So, we're in a bad position. I mean, black people are no holes in the bad position, man. <laughs> we just need to solve this problem. That's all I got to say. I read, a, I read an article where in Japan, the, the Japanese are now saying they invented um, reggae music, not the Jamaicans. And the culture is so big in Japan <laughs> that, that they have so much money behind it. I mean, it absolutely blew my mind. They actually go in blackface and put on fake dreadlocks and do reggae concerts, lip singing to the Jamaican reggae artists, and they selling it like it's their music. Right? Yep. yep. Unbelievable. Yep. You know what? You know what? Because that's what they did. Because they started coming to Jamaica, these Japanese people, at the dances and stuff. You know what I mean? And black people are so inclusive. When anybody comes in, they just come with open arms. And what they did was just, they just stole. You know what I mean? And, and, and brought it. So now they have this, these uh, uh, Japanese dances. I mean, I saw one where uh, uh, this, this Japanese girl, she started tanning and stuff and like putting in weeds and stuff, saying that they're black. But, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, man, we got a lot of work to do. <laughs> we got a lot of work to do, yo. We got a lot of work to do. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay, I'm just making sure I'm not sure if I can be heard. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to uh, make sure I got what I had said before. Is <clears throat> I wanted to know how the uh, preacher assessed that uh, that the uh, white officer was no longer a racist. Uh, that's, that, was, that was that was my uh, pushback on him. I wanted to know what did he say um, that made him think that, oh, he's no longer a racist no more. And how did that happen overnight as some chicken and waffles? <laughs> I don't know either. Um, I mean, they. I think both of them, I think even uh, Miss Huff, her 
her quote, even though they did leave out apparently everything else that she said, but I think she even uh, was talking about that in terms of people make mistakes and, you know, we got to be, uh, got to be able to move forward. Oh yeah. She did say forgive. She said, by God, we need to be able to forgive people. Um, I'm just, and it's so, this is a, another separate report that I think could be written. Uh, that article that I mentioned that was in the New York times, the act of rigorous forgiving. Uh, and this is about Brian with, this is still in my view, directly about racism, whether you're talking about the Iraq aspect of it or the Katrina aspect of it, either way, it's still racism. What he contributed to non-white people being harmed, this white man greatly contributed in my opinion. Um, but it's I'm not reading the whole thing, just the portion about forgiveness. He says forgiveness is often spoken of in sentimental terms, a gushy absolution for everything, regardless of right or wrong. But many writers ranging from Hannah Arendt and the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to modern figures like Jeffrey Murphy and L. Gregory Jones have tried to think hard about rigorous forgiveness, which balances accountability with compassion. They've generally described four different four different processes involved in forgiveness. Preemptive mercy. Martin Luther King Jr. argued that forgiveness isn't an act, it's an attitude. We are all sinners. We expect sin, empathize with sin, and are slow to think ourselves superior. The forgiving person is strong enough to display anger and resentment toward the person who has wronged her, but she is also strong enough to give away that anger and resentment. In this view, the forgiving person makes the first move even before the offender has asked. She resists the natural urge for vengeance. Instead, she creates a welcoming context in which the offender can confess. I will stop there. He goes on to have lots of other Dr. King uh, references and all of this about reconciliation. Uh, and again, I will just say again, uh, I didn't hear any of this in American Sniper. Maybe I missed a page. I don't remember it being about, you know, hey, I'm a Christian. Let us reconcile with the savages. Uh, let us, you know, savages. forgive. I don't remember any of that. And it's been my experience that white folks do not get down like that at all. Uh, where, oh, man, you know, let me be the first one to turn the other cheek. And we don't want to hold yeah, the yeah. They just don't. It's exactly. black people consistently globally they terrorize and stomp on us and then let's go to the chicken and waffle shack and we'll have a reconciliation you know brunch and everything is all good like that is the and don't, and don't forget the preacher mental illness don't forget to bring out the preacher Dr. Wellesley called that uh, mental illness with Eugene DeCock because he just got reconciliation and forgiveness to prime evil in South Africa. She called that mental illness. Uh, and she said she did not. She did not. She did not encourage her patients to be all about forgiveness. She said, if you feel that way at some point, that's fine. But that is not your obligation. That is not your objective to go about forgiving someone who has perpetrated a wrong against you. She does not as a mental health practitioner. She does not advise her patients to think that way. And I don't think we should either. That is, uh, I think it's uh, logical. Cause I, I remember I was on his Twitter. I had looked at his Twitter and he said something about forgiveness on his Twitter as well. And I just asked the question, do you think that's logical? And, uh, you know, 
I ain't got a response yet, so hey, I don't expect to get a response to that. <clears throat> hey, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, just about to say, the last thing I was about to say, I just find it, you know, just like you said, Gus, you know, you just start paying attention when these preachers come out the woodworks and they always, they, they, they like got them in the front, forefront. It's like they're on TV everywhere. When something um, goes down, preacher right out in front of your face. And, you know, they say all the good game, but you, you listen to them and, and you really wonder, do they have a real, a real grasp of what racism is? And is this just a compromise thing or is it, you know, just something to, to keep the, to keep the black population calm down? Yeah, go ahead. The person that called in, uh, on the flash phone, did you have something you wanted to share as well? Making sure we get everybody in. Uh, good evening, everyone. Um, no, I don't. I was just, I kind of called in late. I caught the show late. Um, I was going to comment on the uh, people were just talking about Japan. Uh, that's why I live right now, currently in the military. And uh, and I just, every day I just kind of observe the the, uh, the impact of uh, racism, white supremacy on the Japanese people, and it's pretty inter interesting. But uh, that's all I had. Uh, thank you. Japan, right on. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to ask you guys if you heard about the uh, the the white nationalist group, nationalist group on the uh, Arizona State University campus that was giving out flyers trying to recruit uh, young people from age eighteen to thirty-five. Did you hear about that? Uh, was it doesn't surprise me, but was this this happened like this week or? Today. Oh yeah, this week, this week, yeah. Like I got, I saw the, the the article today. Oh, that's great. I'll see if I can check it out. They were on ASU specifically. Um, or Arizona State University specifically. Wow. Yep. Wow, not surprising. Maybe uh, our good uh, officer Farron stopped through. Oh yeah, I see. I see the reports. I, they, I suspect that might have been tied because that that's the same campus where they had that class where they had that class again. Apparently, the problem of whiteness. Uh, it's a literature class at ASU uh, that I think a white person is teaching. And Fox made a big to do about this. I think last or within the last two weeks, they made a big deal about this and saying, you know, you couldn't have a problem uh, problem of blackness uh, class or, or whatever. Uh, they they think would be an equal uh, equal offense in their mind, but yeah, I suspect that could be a response. Uh, the people saying that white people are being teased and we're the victims, and we got to stick up for ourselves and blah blah blah. Like I'm checking, I'm reading one of the articles now to see if they they reference that. And this person that the uh, the 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 police father that 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 rape was it a non-white female or male? Do you know? Say it one more time, please. You said that the uh, the police officers, police officer father, his father raped somebody. Oh, right, raped somebody? right, right, right. Yes. Was it a male or female? It was a male. Was he charged or anything, or do you know? Alvin Yellowhair uh, was his name. Was okay. The, okay. Uh, his okay. father, John Farron, was not charged. They had an investigation. There was no uh, indictment. 
um, the victim, he filed a suit, a civil suit after they decided there was not going to be an indictment. But yeah, I can uh, post one of the articles that I read about this <clears throat> uh, so folks can check it out. I'll put it on my Facebook page. Uh, the one I'm looking at, it's uh, Thrust and Perry. Uh, it's from 1998, the Phoenix Times. That in and of itself, I think, should have been headline uh, news that this officer who who did this is not. I mean, you got the video, the officer in this video who did this to, to Dr. Orr, his dad uh, was accused of, of this act. Uh, of I mean, that should just be on the record. So that is attached every time this story is told. People can put it out there. They no indictment. Fine. Come to your own conclusions. You can go look online. Uh, there's reports and what have you and, and get more information. But I, I think that that is that is another aspect of racism. The fact that that doesn't get played up at all. Like I've seen different reports where they talk about Officer Farron being from a family of uh, law enforcement officers, but they don't include that tidbit uh, in his family history. Yeah, that was great research on your behalf, Gus. Um, you pulled that up, man. I was I was inside my head cracking up. I was like, man, I mean. He abdued. He abdued. it to God. I mean, he stuck a stuck stuck the Billy Club. It's like the prosecutor in uh, Ferguson. His father was killed by a black guy, you know, but he's still the first prosecutor on a case there where a black guy's killed by a cop. Um, and um, I had a comment on the um, someone mentioned civil rights. You know, to me, um, civil rights is just another form of white supremacy. You know, you got to vote every twenty years for us to be able to vote. And um, get rights, and it's all written on paper, but can be taken away at any time. I mean, it's just showing how much power they have over us every day. Every time we have to go to court for something done wrong to us, and we just get, as you would say, got some trinkets in exchange for our mistreatment. That's just another form of white supremacy. It's just a way for them to pacify what they do to us, you know. And I think that we really need to go in another direction. It hasn't worked in all this time, just like the marching, just like everything else. I mean, it's time for us just to take another turn and maybe step out and do something different for a change. Yeah, they got a lot of confusion going on at voting law. Anyway, I think that uh, <clears throat> that the next person should be the should be uh, since the lawyer likes to talk on on radio shows, he should come on here and. Uh, <laughs> Ask some of these questions, uh, especially about the father. I mean, uh, does, he, does, does he think that's uh, some kind of pathological uh, behavior there? <laughs> yeah, let's get the lawyer on. Fucking lawyer. You know, that lawyer can answer some of these questions about uh, the Fourth Amendment and uh, <clears throat> and how the how the uh, Supreme Court is haggling over uh, what the police officer reasonably can do. That's what that that decision was about. He, he that, that he can make a mistake. He's allowed to make a mistake reasonably if it's a reasonable. Uh, if he thinks that this law uh, is is the law, the way he sees it, <clears throat> and you, that you committed a crime, he can reasonably stop you if he thinks you committed a crime, and. Uh, it just happens that no, you did not commit that crime. Uh, but he still has to be able to stop you. There still has to be some form of a crime in order for him to stop you. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what the, they were—they were agreeing to that 
you can reasonably he can reasonably make a mistake in the law or in in, in deciphering that crime. Okay, so the Fourth Amendment is still there. I uh, wish we had got Reverend Maupin on a bit longer. I know folks had questions specifically for him. Uh, I'll drop him an email. Maybe he had a battery problem or something happened uh, during the course of the uh, exchange. But, uh, yeah, I was I was looking forward. I, I, I didn't even get to read uh, the sodomy charges against Officer Farron's father. I didn't even get to share that with him to see if he knew about that uh, or not. But uh, I will drop him an email and uh, we will see. <laughs> maybe uh, maybe he lost signal. Who knows? We'll we'll see what happened. But anywho, uh, we should be back uh, tomorrow. Uh, it'll be book study session number one on the autobiography of Malcolm X. Uh, 50 year anniversary of his assassination is next weekend. So I thought it would be good timing to review his work. Uh, normal broadcast time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, the compensatory call-in uh, this Saturday, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, and we should have a different white man on the program on Monday. He wrote an article. I finally got caught up <clears throat> on my Twitter feed. I uh, then backed up like big time, uh, but I finally went and checked and I'm all caught up now. Until justice, at Until Justice, folks want to follow uh, on Twitter, but I ended up uh, getting articles and guests and the whole nine. Somebody had tweeted me that we should get this white guy on. He wrote this post about raising pro-black biracial children. That was what the article was titled uh, from this white guy. And uh, he should be with us on Monday. Uh, he talks about racism. Uh, he, you know, talks about his experience. Uh, I've kind of had my fill with these uh interracial uh broadcast but yeah that should be monday uh at least it will be a white person i will be looking forward to, to chatting him up normal broadcast time 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific and i think we got the white radio host from the south carolina station uh for folks who remember we had melvin Poole on the program last week with the friendship nine and he was saying that he went on this white guy's uh radio program manning kimmel is his name in south carolina and he said he thought mr kimmel tries not to be racist and uh, he had talked about the Friendship Nine and some of he voiced his disgust with Al Sharpton and some other matters. I thought it would be cool to get him on the program uh, to talk about some of uh, what even what Mr. Poole said about him trying not to be racist, uh, as well as some of his thoughts about some of the more recent incidents of racism in the state of South Carolina. That should be Tuesday. Uh, folks have uh, suggestions for Things that should be written about. I'm very serious about that because I do have to do a lot more writing now. So if you have something, email untiljustice at gmail.com, untiljustice at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in. Share the information. Uh, Again, if nothing else, you should get that report. Take a look at it. Uh, And that's another one you can toss in when Ursula or Dr. Ursula or when her case is mentioned, you can mention, hey, his father. Uh, uh, what they call a uh, an interesting past worthy of investigation as well. Might even be similar patterns of racism father to son in a family of enforcement officers. You can bring that up and bam, you'll have a source that you can uh, lay out and give all the graphic details. 
Anywho, if you get confused, have questions, suggestions, gripes, feel free email untiljustice at gmail.com. Invest racism hyphen notes.blogspot.com. Racism hyphen notes.blogspot.com. PayPal is in the top right corner. Listener supported counter racist radio. If you're not feeling PayPal, Drop me an email and we will get you a physical mailing address. Many thanks to all of the folks who have invested and helped keep us on the air for the past almost six years. Next weekend, six years. Hope it has been constructive. Uh, Stay codified. Stay as safe as you possibly can under conditions of white terrorism. Uh, Again, sobriety would be best. If you can't be sober, at least be codified. Uh, Do not drink, consume any alcohol, intoxicants around whites. Do not be behind the wheel of a vehicle. You are asking for massive troubles. Sobriety would be best under conditions of war. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice as soon as possible. Context of white supremacy. Signing out. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.